0: fargo season two episode 10 palindrome it's the same backwards and forwards it's over we're just getting started here on post show recaps not only talking about fargo season two episode 10 the season finale but talking about season two of fargo as a whole thank you very much for listening to this podcast i am antonio mazzaro i'm here with two men who uh are they communicating with are you guys gonna ready to podcast tonight in picture language is that what
1: we're gonna do that's why it's a video podcast, right? Oh. They don't know about it. <laughs> Snap, we forgot to start
0: the video. I'm with Mike Bloom and Jeremiah Panhorse. Jeremiah, are you ready to communicate with images?
2: I am. I am totally ready. I got a whole language all set up for this.
0: Oh, that's my phone has one built into it already. So really? I think that, yeah, it's crazy how that works. I don't know. Maybe wow. Hank was just a little ahead of his time. I think so. <laughs>
1: Hank invented emoji. Yeah, I mean, it all yeah. makes sense. That's part of Betsy's dream, right?
0: Yes, exactly. Costco, um, electric football, or like handheld football, and uh, and and the poop emoji. I think is what <laughs> Betsy's dream ultimately was. So that worked out. That's really my well.
2: favorite emoji, by the way. Of
0: course, <laughs> Mike. What's your favorite emoji?
1: Uh, I like the one of the little dragon. The little dragon. The dragon. What? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I just think it's really funny how you have to imagine like the boardrooms that these people are in. maybe Mike Milligan's in that boardroom as well uh, while on their breaks on rounds of golf, how they're thinking like okay let's figure out these basic symbols that we want to throw in there and somebody's like oh, got it tiny dragon let's put it in there the, that the, wasn't was like that wasn't like the first draft of them too I remember like I know they rolled out other versions but tiny dragon was one of the first ones they put in there
0: at the risk of going very far off topic and we will get into everything that was uh, that happened in this season finale and, and what it means for the season as a whole but Mike I gotta know in what context do you use a dragon.
1: Um, you know, it it can really be like many things that were thrown out in this episode of Fargo. I feel like it can be used for a variety of reasons, and the the people who receive the text can interpret it however they like. And how they interpret it determines our relationship, how they feel towards me, and I gauge it from there. Is this like
0: sending someone a picture of a turtle climbing out of a briefcase?
1: Yes, exactly. It's, uh, Arnold from Master of None, I think, loves the tiny dragon emoticon as well. All right. Well, Jeremiah, I'm not going to ask you
0: how you use the poo emoji. We're just going to leave that to people's imaginations. Yeah,
2: it's probably a good idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, it's not not the 80s anymore. It's not the 70s anymore, and it's not season two of Fargo anymore. We're done. Uh, We like cakes get done. We're baked. This season is over. Many people have died. Many people did not, and many people um, are are different people now at the end of Fargo season two. In some cases, I think, as confirmed, uh, very, very, very different people. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, If you're not familiar with our podcast here at Post Show Recaps, we talk about TV and film, uh, especially fictional and scripted television uh, we've been doing this Fargo podcast every week if you want to do what you can do you can subscribe to our podcast feeds uh, for our general feed for all our shows Fargo Walking Dead leftovers uh, once upon a time and everything in between you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes if you subscribe to our feed moves us up in the charts and iTunes helps other people get involved in the conversation and it really makes the whole thing more enjoyable for everyone so we'd love it if you could subscribe to that feed but if not We'll definitely keep talking about what we're doing, uh, and hopefully you're enjoying uh, what we do here at Post Show Recaps. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying it a little more uh, than at least myself uh, personally enjoyed some aspects of the season finale. I think we're going to have a very uh, robust uh, and, and perhaps lively podcast here because just talking off the air with you, Mike, there are some things that I liked about the finale that you didn't like as much. There are probably some things about the finale, Jeremiah, that you liked that neither Mike or I liked as much. So I think this will be really robust. But overall, gentlemen, um, starting with you, Mike, how did you feel about the finale uh, as an episode, uh, and really kind of as a coda to this second season of Fargo?
1: So it's clear that Noah Hawley was trying a lot of things out this season. I think that's very determinate from the big event that happened last episode that you guys spent a good majority of your podcast for the right reasons talking about last time. I think that goes to show here as well. It feels like Hawley has taken a little bit of a deviation from what it usually does, which let's remember last season finale was a much more of a climactic event. That's when, you know, both Lorne Malibu and Lester Nygaard met their karmic fates, and it turned out that everyone else lived happily ever after, which was a really nice ending. Here it seems like they went more the route of something like The Wire or Game of Thrones, where the big cataclysmic event happened in the ninth episode. This tenth episode was more so about the fallout. You know, we really didn't, aside from Ed... Nobody died this episode after a huge slaughtering of main characters in the previous episode. So it was a little interesting to see that falling action because we haven't gotten that in the last season. Um, and I know in terms of, and this is actually something I asked you guys in your pre-season podcast about, you know, this, this show occasionally dives into these Cohenisms, specifically the, the sort of trope of, the person who, del- who rambles off the story that means something in a larger sense. And I feel like it's been like, there's been Cohenisms from here and there, and people have complained about it from time to time, but I feel like this is the most Cohenist episode we've had thus far in Fargo. The in terms of, Yes, the, Cohen, the Cohen's <laughs> levels were off the charts. Uh, they were dialed up to 11, because I feel like... There were so many things this episode that were just kind of thrown out there into the ethos for people to interpret. And that's including things like Betsy's dream and Lou's story and Hank's conversation at the end. So even twenty four nearly 24 hours after watching this, I'm still so all over the place in terms of my thoughts about this stuff because I'm really having trouble grasping what a lot of it means. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's not the point. Maybe we can figure out some meanings over the next some odd time when we talk about these things. But... Overall, I'd say it was enjoyable for me to see this sort of uh, resolving action take place over the course of an hour and 15 minutes instead of last year when it seemed to take place over the course of like maybe half an hour at most. You're a little touched, aren't you, Mike? <laughs> listen, that theory did not pan out. Uh maybe, who knows? I, I listen, I'll, I love Hank and all, but you know, if, if someone did into your house said I made up a secret language, you might you might lately look at him a, a little oddly. So I don't know if I'm completely out of the woods yet with this whole Hank is crazy theory, but yeah, definitely I've been disproven on a lot of things that i had suggested a couple episodes ago. Yeah, but you
0: know what? I think you're on point a little bit that it is interesting for Hank to call someone touch when the the episode sort of ends with him sharing what is ultimately a very tender story about how he's sort of gone off the rails and decided to create his own language. So uh, we'll talk more about that when we get to that scene. But overall, Jeremiah, what are your thoughts on this finale? Uh, Like I said to Mike, both as an episode on its own uh, and as sort of a coda for the second season.
2: Well, I thought, I think, you know, you look at the Fargo universe, you know, carefully and, and, I think that you can say that uh, it crash, it does a great job portraying people that are in strange and unusual circumstances. And in this season, I think they represented that very well. I thought, uh, you know, as a season for the season as a whole, I'm really going to have to take a little time to really kind of digest a little bit more. I, I have a lot of the same feelings, Mike, that you just had that you just uh, mentioned. Uh, I think as an episode, I thought. You know, yes, it wasn't nearly as climatic or anything like that but i i thought I thought the finale was very beautiful myself. I really liked how it touched in a lot of the themes that's been going on a lot this season, especially that one about questioning the meaning of life, you know like what are we here for, and things like that and of course, they again went there with the synthesis uh, episode we talked about with the the question about whether or not you, is your life is it more of a burden or a punishment how did you feel about that i really enjoyed that aspect and then of course we closed off the whole episode with hank's you know feelings about the situation about how he really doesn't maybe know the meaning of life but he certainly sees uh, you know where problems arise and of course that being the idea about miscommunications and how that really causes conflict. And I, I just, I just feel like, you know, overall, it was a really beautiful episode. I, I really enjoyed it. And I know you guys uh, may, may not feel that way yourselves, but I, I just, I thought, I thought they did a really good job, but yet there is, there's some things we're going to talk about, that I probably didn't like, but you know, overall I, I was pretty satisfied.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I kind of uh, echo your sentiments in on the whole Jeremiah, there are, probably two to three things that I had a big, prob- big, big big problems with in this finale, and we will talk mm. about it. But right. I think that overall, I really agree with you that thematically, um, a lot of the complaints on, on Reddit about this episode are they expected more things to happen, that they didn't expect the whole episode of falling action with a little trickle of resolution, that um, maybe they didn't understand, I guess, last week when season nine, or episode nine uh, was really popping off with all the climactic stuff, uh, that episode 10 wasn't really going to be this action. Heavy kind of episode. And I think maybe that isn't, uh, I don't think people are wrong for having expectations. I think that those expectations, I can see them being let down because. We really didn't have that. We had what ultimately amounted to be kind of the action climax of this episode was, I think, in Peggy's head. We'll get into that, whether the adrenaline's there, what's happening. Uh, And so there really wasn't a ton of action in this episode. It really was more about kind of falling action and the resolution. Um, And as such, I thought most uh, there are two or three really bang up conversations In this episode and scenes that I thought really did, as you're saying, Jeremiah, I think thematically uh, really crush it. We can talk about what we think the themes were if they were more in line with what you're saying about life and uh, whether it's a burden in the myth of Sisyphus and Camus and all of it. but generally speaking, I thought that those things were really good. And I think in keeping with the kind of underpinnings and themes that have been presented throughout this season, things about like the small town and the, the 80s and the movement to the future from the 70s and uh, people's kind of doubts about what's going on. And if you try hard, uh, is it going to work out? And, you know, the, thinking back to the conversation that Lou had with President Reagan, then not yet President Reagan in the bathroom. Uh, about what do we do and those sorts of things. Um, And the story that Lou tells in the car, uh, the true story, as it turns out, uh, it is actually a true story about the South Vietnamese uh, pilot and the helicopter and his family. Um, I think all of those things were really pretty well situated thematically. Uh, That said, I also agree with you, Mike, that this episode really does throw a lot at the wall. And, of course, the season did as a whole generally as well. Um, and to me, you know, your mileage may vary. Uh, you've heard, um, if you've listened to this podcast at all, my mileage on the UFO stuff is is negative, uh, oh. negative throughout. And it remains so, and that's fine. Um, your mileage doesn't have to be as negative as mine uh, for you to also have issues with some of the things that happened in this episode, or for you to have no issue with anything that happened on this season of Fargo. But we're going to unpack everything that happened in this episode. We're going to go kind of scene by scene, as we tend to do. So, jumping right in um i thought fantastic uh, fantastic uh, montage here in the cold open of mm-hmm. the Gerhardt of the Gerhardt deaths uh or the corpses we see rye in the freezer we see oto for the first time we see <laughs> oto dead at the table we see uh, simone confirmed uh, dead in the woods and we see dodd and bear bleeding out and we do get uh, yet another hint of the ufo over bear's body um my question for you guys is that does this uh are you feeling okay about kind of seeing Simone and uh and Otto uh dead for the first time in this montage um and i, I you know I, I i don't know if that detracts at all from the fact that the Simone death was presented so artistically and we didn't really see it or if this fixes the issue that we had um, with Oto. We also see Floyd dead as well. Um, She's in the montage. I I don't know. There are some issues I think we've talked about throughout the season with some of these Gerhardt deaths. Do you guys feel like this montage fixes it in any way or detracts from their death scenes in any way? Mike, what's your take?
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it um, because I think if you left them off screen as you did with their deaths actually throughout the season, I feel like it would distract from this general idea, as, and this quote is said later by the man who fixes handsy up with a new face, great empires fall and are forgotten. And I feel like it would be a lot less meaningful had you said like, oh yeah, and those two got killed off screen, so we'll forget about them, we'll just pan over people who got killed on screen. I feel like getting a visual representation at the, right at the start of the episode of the Gerhards are basically cleaned out. For all we know, Charlie's, you know, sitting in a jail cell like, spoiler alert for Breaking Bad, Huel at the end of its of its tenure. But I feel like... This was a fantastic representation right from the get-go to say this is a, a cataclysmic event happened over these past nine episodes that has cleaned out this empire, that family that has had a stranglehold on operations in this district um, and I'll also add on to the question here of this is I believe the first and maybe only time that a person has actually said the disclaimer out loud as well and, I, and Lou was doing that and it was it was interesting because it brought such a voice to it before uh, whereas you know before it was it was much more cold and you hear the typewriter sound effects and I, f- I feel like it that was meant to give one message to have a human voice behind it sends a completely different message as well.
0: Yeah, his emotion from that is really kind of prevalent. He he loses his voice a couple of times or his voice gets a little shaky, Um, specifically when we see Betsy, who isn't dead, uh, when he's saying out of respect for the dead, the names have been changed. So I agree. I thought that was really good. Jeremiah, are you on point with this montage?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I had I had the same feelings that Mike had because it feels like, you know, it really does set up that tone that we have about this this empire of this Gerhard families, you know, coming to an end and i think that if you don't have that there, it doesn't really set up the rest of the episode as well as it would have if it was uh, left out so i th- i thought yeah i thought it was i thought it was very well handled very well i really enjoyed it yeah, and I, and I, I mean, I really do think that that voice of Lou
0: kind of telling the kind of story there. Um, at least it's, uh, it, we know it's Patrick Wilson and it's probably Lou. Not clear, obviously, whether this is Lou, uh, at the time, uh, maybe several years later, and maybe that's why uh, he gets a little. Uncomfortable with what uh, he, you know, he's talking about when he sees Betsy on the screen. Um, I don't know, but I think that his voice clearly does react to the images, which I think is interesting. This show is played with time and place, and kind of screwing around with timelines and who's speaking and all of it. In season one, that was a thing. In season two, even last episode, we had the Martin Freeman kind of voiceover as a narrator, mm-hmm. uh, narrating the midwestern or book of true crime in the Midwest. So here we have like a character, or at least an actor from this season of Fargo, uh, using and, and speaking the voiceover. Um, and sometimes you have that in the erstwhile on Fargo, uh, or in the kind of previously on little things that they do. But uh, this is, this one really stood out to me because of the emotion in Patrick Wilson's voice. And, so I, it really popped, and I thought it was really good.
2: Yeah, it did give that story feel to it, like you know he's he's telling us the story of what happened, and uh, I really did too. I thought it felt really right to have Lou being the one to tell us this final this final part of this chapter
0: yeah and I think that um I think it makes some sense too, because we know Lou does survive into season one. Um, maybe right. this is his version of things uh, uh, or some version of what he understands the truth to be, uh, and I think that that's kind of fascinating to to watch play out and to look at uh, from that perspective, like we saw the unreliable narrator uh, of the last episode and not being sure really if what we were seeing was what was written in a book or what really happened and things like that. I think it's interesting to have Lou be a character who clearly has emotion doing this voiceover so. Uh, Especially interesting considering the next scene from after this montage uh, is Noreen and Molly and Betsy uh, in the bed there. That's where the montage kind of ends. And Betsy is alive, um, as confirmed uh, right here at the beginning. We, We weren't sure whether last week was the end of Betsy or not. We speculated a lot about that. Thankfully, it was not. She wakes up in the bed. Molly is clinging to her. She talks to Noreen a little bit about it. Um, then we find out that the medicine is probably or the real medicine. It isn't the sugar pills yeah. and that she's having sort of an adverse reaction to that. Uh, and she's supposed to go back to sleep and she does. And then she has, Mike, this great dream uh, about <laughs> what, like Costco and graduations. I, I don't know. What did you think about this dream and where this kind of speech took place in the context of uh, the timeline of the show?
1: Yeah, so the most comparisons I've seen to this dream is the end of Raising Arizona, where Nick Cage basically goes into this entire monologue, which is very similarly themed. It's not exactly, you know, Nick Cage saying, and then oh, there's going to be things that you type on and then you're going to talk with people on the internet. Uh, but <laughs> it's it's more so... it's So Betsy's is, is more so about predicting specific things in the future, but much like um, the montage at the end of Raising Arizona, she's tracking her daughter's progress. We see a young Molly in the classroom. We see her graduate class of 91. And then we see uh really awesome, you know, Alison Tolman slash Colin Hanks slash Keith Carradine sighting. Uh, but apparently <laughs> that status quo might be interrupted by uh, what she calls i believe chaos a fracture of peace and enlightenment and we see sort of flashes that have happened in the previous episode though i don't know let's not get into too much back to the future territory but i feel like that we haven't spun off into Please. a different timeline uh <laughs> due to those actions i don't know get
0: the the, uh, the daughter had blonde hair instead of brown hair in this flashback alternate Ooh. hill valley 1985 here
1: Oh, that's so true. Maybe uh, Betsy found a sports almanac and t- that t- t- taught her granddaughter to—is uh, it granddaughter? I guess yeah, her granddaughter yeah. to dye her hair. Maybe UFOs yeah,
0: so, are involved with time travel somehow. Mike, could happen. So this time. is
1: so, so this is one of those things, yeah, that I, that I have a big question mark next to because even aside from again the Cohenism alluding to the end of raising Arizona, it's weird to me that you know does she possess these like powers of precognition because it's, again it's not just predicting her daughter's future it's predicting all these random little bits of the future so it's still hard for me to wrap my head around though a thing that i did like about this scene is that you know we talk about how xanadu is not such a xanadu and that the pills are trying to kill her i feel like that's greatly themed towards this idea of like the things that your preventative measures that you take end up being your downfall and that happens that we'll see that later on with ed where you know him hiding in the meat locker probably wasn't the best idea uh in terms of that gunshot wound so i like that part of the scene the dream itself i'm still trying to figure out i'm hoping you guys can help me with that
2: jeremiah can you help mike with that (laughs) for me i thought like the dream was just kind of to build up some tension that possibly you know there could be some Some things to be feared in this episode, which I thought was kind of a waste if that's really where they were going with, because, you know, I already know that Lou survives. Now, granted, I didn't know for sure if Hank was going to survive or not, but that's not Hank's that if Hank was to die, that's not going to necessarily affect the future in which that she's seeing. The only thing would affect the future in which she kind of implies there at the end of the dream would be, of course, is if Hansy was to somehow kill Lou. That's not going to happen. So I just I, I felt like maybe that tension was there. I almost feel like, though, that the whole Dream Sequence was more of, again, playing playing some homage to the Coen brothers and raising Arizona and having that in there. And also maybe just for a nice stuff uh, for us to get to see. Uh, Molly again as an adult. I don't. I don't really know. I mean, you know that I'm sure lots of fans watch it and go, "Oh, look! They're sitting around the table, and there's the baby." You know. I mean, how builds, dare you, Jeremiah? Has, well, <laughs> I'm just saying it has oh. a, has a, an emotion for for the viewers as they're watching because you know we know that most Fargo fans that have seen season one were, of course, in love with Molly. Everybody loves Molly, and we all love the fact that she gets married to Gus and they have this sweet little family. We had that just beautiful moment that we had at the end of season one. And it kind of brings those emotions back for us. So I think you have that in there as well. But I don't other outside of that, I really don't know if there's any significant meaning to have there other than just, it was a uh, beautiful to watch. Yeah. What about you? Or did you have, did you get anything else out of it other than it was beautiful to watch? First of all, Jeremiah, can you do me a favor? Can you just say, I love Molly? I love Molly. Mike. Re- can you clip
1: that out? yes and, and we'll put a club beat behind it yes it's exactly like, <laughs> if yeah. anybody wants to
0: remix that that would be great if somebody can remix that uh, Jeremiah's <laughs> I Love Molly remix that would be fantastic but yeah oh, please
1: e- email it to his daughters well.
0: <laughs> I thought you were going to want to clip out the part where I went aww <laughs> well hey <laughs> The remix is up to anybody who makes it, so we're
2: we're open source here at Post Show Recaps. You know, I'm a little afraid now. What kind of
0: stuff people are going to send me? Beats by Jeremiah. We can have it happen. No, I I agree with you, Jeremiah, and and you, Mike, that I, for me it worked as a as an homage to Raising Arizona. There have been some criticisms from uh, Alan Sepinwall, who we talk about a lot here at Post Show Recaps, a very notable TV critic at HitFix.com. Uh, Alan, by the way, has a great book called The Revolution Was Televised. If Mm -hmm. you have a TV fan in your life and it's Christmas and you're looking for something like a stocking stuff or a great book, I highly recommend that book. He's not, you know, I don't get anything. We don't get anything out of plugging that. Um, But I read it myself. He's updated it recently. It's basically about all the kind of landmark shows in this modern age of TV and how they sort of changed the landscape and uh, what was unique about them and what they did really well with deep dives with the creators and showrunners of each of the shows. So have you guys read that book?
1: I've no. only I've I've seen the cover and I saw Don Draper on it. Or was it Don Draper or is it Walter <laughs> White? One of those it two is on the current cover. Yeah, yeah, Don
2: Draper's on the it, cover. It, yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah, on the cover and I've been meaning to read his book for a while, Antonio, but I, I, I it is definitely one I need to, to check out.
0: But anyway, yeah, I definitely highly recommend checking that book out. But Alan Sepinwall has talked about how the the overload on Coen Brothers kind of connections and references has at times, in his opinion, detracted from the series, uh, especially in season two. And I'd say that the Raising Arizona thing is direct. I mean, I think that that's right. I don't think that there's any kind of uh, coincidence that uh, is it high uh, H.I. or whatever uh, kind of his nickname is there in Raising Arizona. Uh, Nick Cage uh, has a very similar sequence each shot. uh, uh, and kind of uh, the the, te- the the color kind of temperature is very similar. Um, it, it is a very nice tribute. Uh, it is questionable exactly who she's delivering the speech to and when. Um, whether she has some precognitive ability, I don't know. I mean, she that is very clearly a Costco uh, that she sees. I recognize that snack bar a mile away. Uh, so yeah, I could even <laughs> smell the pizza from here, guys. Um, but yeah, are uh, you
2: sure it she- wasn't a Sam's? No, that was clearly a Costco. Okay, Jeremiah. all right, yeah. I'll take oh your word gosh. for it. No. What about
0: BJ's. That's, no, I <laughs> BJ's. What? Isn't that like a like a restaurant? I don't know. Anyway, um but yeah, this is a you know that electric football or that that handheld football game. That was a big game when I was young. Oh well, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Jeremiah, I know you remember it as well. Mike, we when we were young, we didn't have um 3DSs or uh smartphones. I don't I don't know if this is at all strange to you did you you
1: get wi-fi on those things no we did not
0: get wi-fi on it it was (laughs) this was crazy i know to think about but um that was a really popular game that every house in the early 80s had and so i think it's cool to see those sorts of kind of touchstones and benchmarks i like that we saw the kind of solverson clan um with aging lou uh there i think that that worked out really well um i think that it's great that You know, earlier in the season when we saw Betsy talking to Carl Weathers, she was like, don't let him marry that so-and-so. And, Uh, and, you know, he can get remarried, but not to that woman. Um, But (laughs) here we see ultimately what the truth is, which is that Molly has grown up. Molly has graduated. Molly is married. Um, You know, Desmond has a barrel in the marketplace. Uh, Molly is a singer in a band. Like, we actually see all the things that we know to be true from Fargo season one, and Betsy's kind of calling it out. I thought that that was really sweet. Um, But I I don't know. I – it – Did you guys, you know, we then, but the the thing about the sequence to me that resonated is that it then becomes a little bit of a nightmare. The song War Pig starts, which is awesome. Yeah, Yeah. really, really cool. Uh, We see Hansy kind of appearing in flames in the dream, um, and Betsy's like, you know, but then bad things could happen. Um, I don't know. I didn't feel any of the sort of impending doom of this dream. Because we know what happens in season one. We know that Hansy does not kill Lou. We know that he Hansy does not kill young Molly. Uh, we know that the good parts of the dream, including Costco, are real. Uh, and we know that Hansy, even though he comes in with war pigs as a nightmare, um, does not really impact that part of the story whatsoever. So did, did that, I mean, did that? Did the montage at all lose anything for you guys, uh, considering the evil part that comes in at the end, really ultimately doesn't impact the story, as we know from season one? Either one of I you.
1: I saw it more as a transition than anything. Um, I, again, like yeah, I, I agree with you that I feel like I wasn't as directly affected by these nightmare-like images because we had just seen a literal massacre at Sioux Falls. I feel like maybe I was a little desensitized to these to these images of Hanzi and flames and Hank shot, uh, considering we had just seen them the week before. But I, I guess I saw it more as just like a little seamless transition into the action that was going on. And I will say on the topic of war pigs, the music specifically in this episode was on point. We'll talk about another couple songs that have been used in this episode but i thought in this episode specifically they, they did a fantastic job picking poignant songs
0: yeah i agree and um i don't know that uh, that war picks was really it just jumps out immediately and that's uh. really really awesome uh jeremiah did you like the, the kind of transition here we transition uh and we see kind of ed and peggy running away we get a cameo from a very kind of uh sci-fi adjacent character here uh did you guys pick up on that
2: uh, uh no the maybe. driver are
0: you talking the about driver. the driver yeah yeah the driver
1: oh i'm not
0: familiar with this one okay uh i believe and i'm you know i'm not the best person to ask about this uh but i believe that that was uh that was i think the uh if was was it the smoking man from the x files i think oh. i think is who that was um i I believe that's the same actor i could be wrong about that but i think that kind of jumped out to a lot of people and um i I think we we definitely want to mention it um that i think that there's a connection there i don't know uh maybe he says something to do with the ufo uh coming down uh but he's in this case if that's him uh that's unfortunately just a driver uh and he gets popped by by hansy not not great bob yeah, no, not great at all. Yeah,
2: so <laughs> yeah, I don't... liked it. I liked the transition. It was beautiful, and and of course, that's one of my favorite favorite all time uh, anti war songs. I just I love it. I was I was I really enjoyed uh, the use of this. And you're definitely right, Mike. We could, we could talk a lot about the music in this episode. It was right on point. So. Yeah,
0: and that was really, I think you're right, an anti-war song, really good to kind of come up there, uh, mm-hmm. and really interesting to see specifically how that played out, um, and I was, I was really pleased with that. I'm not as pleased with how ultimately this all goes, and we'll get to it in a minute, but where we leave this in this moment is we have the guy get shot in the car by Hansi. Hansi is still, as we know from the last episode, Hansi really is on the warpath. Um, and and he really is ready to take down uh, Ed and Peggy. We spent a lot of time last episode talking about why. Um, Is it because they saw him truly vulnerable? Is it because they were the last link to see that he's the one who took Dot out? Uh, Why is he so dead set and dogged on taking Ed and Peggy out? But we debated all of that. We had the narrator asking us to ask ourselves that last episode, Uh, and then we leave this sequence with Hansi again on the trail uh, and the blood trail that Ed and peggy are leaving here mike you pointed out to me that ed gets shot in this sequence
1: yeah it's really quick but hansy shoots and there's a quick uh shot of ed stumbling and him and peggy sort of you know helping him along which makes me believe that this is where he gets the I wouldn't even call it Chekhov's gun wound because it happens literally in this comes came, comes to fruition in this episode uh, but I believe since again it's dark outside it, it might be tough to tell at first but yeah I believe this is where he does get shot
2: yeah he does get shot and it almost to me it almost looked like at first because I went back and watched it a couple times because again how where did he exactly get shot so when I see the scene where he gets shot it almost looked like at first he got in the leg because when I was my first yeah. viewing I thought he got hit in the leg and that that's why he was kind of you know dragging his leg there for a little bit, but then of course by the time we move forward a little bit, but then we realize no, he was he shot in the in the chest area, and it's like okay, this is a lot more serious wound than I originally thought.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I feel the same way. It was just kind of weird that Ed got popped. I, I didn't feel like I missed that last episode. I felt like they were okay uh, when we left um, the last episode. So to see mm-hmm. that kind of play out that way um, was was interesting to me uh, because he clearly is, is laboring very quickly here. Um, and he does get shot somewhere in the exchange here. Someone who's not laboring uh, as much and someone who really is kind of getting coronated on their coronation day. Is Mike Milligan. He arrives at the Gerhardt compound. He's actually listening to War Pigs on the radio in the car, uh, so it's a nice transition with the song there. Um, he gets out, gets into the house. Uh, just for me, he says, people of Earth, I'm home. Uh, you know, just <laughs> very that, happy dude. about he, that. Yep. Yeah, he definitely did that for you. Yeah, so thanks a lot, Mike <laughs> Milligan. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, and then Mike gets into the house and he's kind of wandering around the empty Gerhard house with a kitchenette and he sees the, a picture of a baby. I don't know if it's uh, who it is, if it's Floyd, if it's another younger Gerhard or what it is. He's really bothered by this picture of this baby and he flips it over. Jeremiah, do you have any take on what, what the issue with that picture was or what Milligan's problem might have been with
2: that damn baby staring at him? Was he just creeped out by it? <laughs> I know a lot of people thought it was Simone, but I I are, um, I really can't imagine it being Simone, I personally felt like that picture represented had to be either uh, Otto or Floyd. I thought, I thought Floyd because it looked like it might have been a female baby, but it's kind of hard to tell in a baby picture what it was a boy or a girl. So I kind of felt like maybe it's Floyd. And it but either way, it doesn't matter that it was one, one of the heads of the Gerhardt family. And by putting that picture down, to me, he said, "I'm king now, bitches." You know, and just that was the end hard of it, B. right? Hard B. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Mike, is that that your take on it as well? Minus the hard B?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I I don't don't want to keep spoiling Breaking Bad here, but this was his I won moment where he's basically saying, this is a Gerhardt house no more. The king is dead. Long live the king. And he's about to go into a lot more uh, over the head king metaphors later on. But I feel like this is the first definitive sign to him of like. What your headquarters was is no longer your headquarters.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. My take is the same as as your as both of your take, which is that you know it's just more. This is the end of the Gerhard Empire. He does all but rip their scary Nazi flag off the wall. Um, yeah,
1: I, I had to do a couple of takes there. because I'm like, wait, is that it? Is that a Nazi flag? An yeah. iron
2: cross with like an eagle? What's going on there? I think I briefly mentioned the first time we saw it was when they had that meeting with the, when the Gerhards had their meeting with a bunch of the other people that, uh, in their organization and stuff. And there, I could see the corner of the flag. We couldn't see the whole flag. So now we got to see the whole flag. And apparently it looks like they had taken the Nazi flag and kind of, you know, altered it themselves for their own purpose by putting a big G in the middle, I guess, to symbolize the the family. So which we know there's been lots of references that to this, uh, in this episode or in the season that Otto and was like a, like Hitler, right. And it, that they really had that feel of there were Nazis. So I think that it's kind of clear that, you know, the family really did uh, uh, really take that to heart, I guess, and made themselves a Nazi flag, which is, wow, that's pretty messed up, right? Yeah. I mean, it's dark. It's just that it, you you realize I think there there had
0: been, I think, at some levels and some points throughout the season, specifically, I think a little bit with Simone, maybe a little bit with Bear, especially with Floyd, uh, a little bit of sympathy for the Gerhard family and what, what was happening to them. Uh, but you you got to remember at their core, like that they're the people that hang this flag on the wall, uh, and it yeah. really did it did have a lot of I think Nazi iconography associated with it. So I think it's important that we for, that we don't forget that the the uh, Gerhards were not good people. So uh, Mike Milligan's not forgetting; he's ready for Coronation Day. Uh, but while he's kind of puttering around the Gerhardt compound there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Peggy and Ed are still on the run or the shuffle, if you will, from Hansy trailing them. Uh, they get into a grocery store. Uh, the store owner drops a sweet Christmas, which made me think that he might be Luke Cage. Um, maybe Luke Cage with some plastic surgery, which apparently is uh, you're able to change races with that. We'll get into that. Yeah, I, I um, know a guy. Yeah, yeah, you know a guy, Mike. So that's good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the, the, the sweet Christmas is dropped. Store owner is gone. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is. We see kind of we've seen Hansy kind of tracking them, but Lou and now Schmidt are on the case Ed Schmidt is on the case. Uh, and, you know, they're they're beefing a little bit, saying you were supposed to watch over Ed and Peggy. And Schmidt's like, Man, she's crazy, like she got the drop on me. And I can't believe she reacted that way. And, you know, Ed and Peggy are going into a freezer there at the at the grocery store um, and they lock it from inside. Uh, and Schmidt and Lou are talking about their foobar situation, which we talked about this uh, on an earlier podcast this season. Military acronym uh, standing for F word up beyond all recognition. Like the situation is is insane. World War Three. Uh, a horrible shootout. They're, the characters are talking about it, and Ed and Peggy are kind of in a lot of jeopardy here. Um, we get to then a scene with Ed and Peggy in the. In the meat locker, if you will, the hurt locker. And they're talking it out. Uh, Ed is, is saying to Peggy very clearly, I don't think we're going to make it. And it, at first, it certainly seems like, yeah, I don't think we're going to make it is like, hey, we're not going to get away. But is in this moment, Mike, is Ed breaking up with Peggy? Is that what's happening here?
1: Yeah, he's pretty much saying, like, hey, if we get out of this, uh, you can go to California, but I'm going to go back to my parents' house and, you know, d- build a new butcher shop here, which I thought was fantastic character development from Ed. I thought the way they sent Ed off here, I know you guys complained last week about Floyd kind of got uh, maybe not the biggest send-off that she deserved. I feel like they did Ed justice perfectly here where he has sort of been this beleaguered, you know, husband who's done all this dirty work for his wife and has been kind of assuaged by her the entire time. And he's finally speaking his mind here. He tells her, be quiet, let me speak first. And this is when he finally lets everything out. And I think it was a little cathartic uh to just hear peggy hear from her biggest supporter how you know she's been doing everything wrong and how she's trying to fix things that aren't broken and how she's caused a big mess for both of them i love this scene
0: jeremiah i I know you were big on them working out their relationship (laughs) issues in a meat locker
2: yeah, I do I do I have told people many times that you know if you're going to work through your relationship problems, you know, maybe maybe the meat locker is not always the best place for that. Uh, but I do agree, Mike, man. I I thought this was a great moment for for Ed. You know what the only thing that's that's funny is I it does kind of make his character a little bit even more tragic than it already was because, you know, now the guy, finally, the light bulb finally goes off and you realize, you know, maybe this lady isn't really that good for me. And and then unfortunately it happens to him when he's taking his last few breaths of life. It's like, it happened a little bit too late. You know, if he would have realized this a few days ago, maybe he would have just gone on the run and left her behind or something, but no, he has to wait till after he's got a bullet in him and he's bleeding to death. And it's just like, Oh, The poor guy, man. I mean, we've talked about this before. We all kind of feel sorry for Ed, And you really kind of have to in a way. I mean, yes, he's kind of he he made his own choices. I mean, he could have made some different choices that uh, would have maybe fixed his outcome a lot better. Like one speaking up to Lou at the beginning and saying, yeah, okay, hey, hey, we uh, we kind of hit this right guy and we messed up here. Help us. But no, he had to continue to go along with Peg. I just wish if he would have paid attention to himself, or if he would have realized this information before, maybe he could have saved himself. Well, or maybe at least say maybe he could have, he could have lived. I don't know. Yeah, just hey, made it more tragic. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I agree, and I think it's
0: interesting that he's talking about like, hey, like you know, things were are they don't they don't always need fixing, and I think. Taking Peggy as a character or Kristen Dunt's great performance uh, as Peggy and uh, the way that the character was written, take all that out of the equation and just look at Ed's observation about that. And I think that that is uh, I think that that's actually a really valid observation. And a lot of the times we all walk around wanting to fix stuff, stuff about our lives that are actually probably pretty good if we take a step back uh, and we don't get too crazy about it. I'm not saying we should be complacent in any way, but I think Ed's advice is well taken, no matter who is receiving it, that Mm -hmm. if you're so worried and losing so much sleep and your whole life becomes about change um you should think more about what you have and maybe that it's not that bad or maybe it's worth kind of valuing that because shaking things up doesn't always lead to the best conclusion and of course there's a lot of aphorisms about that or you know the grass is always greener on the other side and that sort of thing um but okay. i think that ed is in this moment i think he's standing up for his point of view which is that it was good for us and I don't know. I think that we'll talk about this more she, in a later scene with Peggy. But I think it's difficult for for anyone to say that it was good for them uh, if Peggy wasn't happy because relationships are a two way street, uh, and that her lack of happiness, some of that maybe had to do with what uh, what Hank talks about at the end, which yeah. are communication issues, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, so,
2: I, I think it'd be good for us to maybe explore too uh, later on about whether or not you know her hearing this maybe maybe will help her down the road after. Well, depending on how long she's in prison. But I mean, you know, like really, this might have been something she really needed to hear. Maybe maybe it will help her as a character down the road in her life.
1: Yeah. And it also doesn't help that before she can try to make it up to him, he dies right there and then. And so considering (laughs) that those are pretty much his last words to her, I feel like that they're that more poignant. Yeah,
0: that's true. And and they're especially poignant considering uh, as all this is happening, um, Hansy is coming into the store. Uh, and or so this, we
1: think. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, this is
0: not, you know, this is not going very well. Um, Hansy's coming into the store. We cut to commercial, a lot of commercials in this finale. I'm just going to say it. I think there's at least five separate commercial breaks and I, it felt like it. I think this is really mm-hmm. tough because here we have this great action scene we build to commercial break. And when we come back, we're back in the Gerhard house. Uh, Mike Milligan is talking to the maid, uh, the woman in the kitchen. Well, we have seen in the background before uh, she's cooking up some uh, strudel or some schnitzel or something. Mike Milligan's not happy about that. He wants something American. Um, and then the guy from Buffalo arrives. Let's call him the Buffaloed. Uh He walks into the room uh, and he's the Buffaloed is kind of in the door. Uh, he's coming with the sole purpose, it seems, of just ransacking the Gerhard compound because he knows they're all dead. He goes right after the silver um, and then, you know, Mike Milligan and he have a face off. And I, I got to say, Jeremiah, we have kind of what could be a major bomb kind of nonchalantly dropped here, which is we've just seen the maid. She is a Native American woman. Um, and then the buffaloed says to Milligan, like, remind me who you
2: are. Are you that kid Odo had with the maid?
0: Is, yeah. that, is that
2: supposed to be Hansy, Jeremiah? <laughs> I know. That's what everybody has. I saw a lot of people talk about this online. I mean, he does say that line. It does make us it does make a lot of sense. Like I could totally see that being a very plausible thing. And it it could answer a lot of maybe where Hansy mind is at and why maybe he has so much resentment against his family because he never treated him like family, even though he really was. Do you guys, so you guys, are you buying into this? You like this idea? Mike, where are you tracking that?
1: It's tough. I, I mean, I thought it was more Buffalo's joke than anything. I mean, I could definitely yeah. see it. And it, like you just said, Jeremy, I feel like that would fill in a lot of blanks in terms of, you know, he's a he's a bastard in a basket, If if that's the case, that he... It's he's a low rung on the totem pole with the Gerhardt clan, not just because of his ethnicity, but because of the fact that he is not a full blood Gerhardt. But I don't know. And there's also the story about how they talked and get into an unreliable narrator. But they talked the last episode about how Otto Gerhardt like found him on the street when he was seven years old and recruited him. So I'm not sure how that would tie into the whole history of things. But I don't know. I'm I'm going to take the other side and just pass it off as just a, a an attempt at a joke right now, considering that Kitchenette is pointing a gun at him.
2: Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it could I mean be a little this, this Ricky guy was his name Rick, right, or something like that. Anyways, so he looks like a Ricky for sure. <laughs> if I, uh, he is kind of a jokester. Like the guy's always laughing and smiling. He thinks he's a real funny guy. I, you're right, Mike. I could totally see him thinking, "Hey, I'm gonna you know pull this joke in here to kind of lighten the mood a little bit because." You know, I'm sure I'm sure in, inside he's like probably crapping his pants thinking, oh, my God, this is not a good this is not good. <laughs> so I, I could see it either way. But it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's interesting for us to talk about and think about as yeah, a possibility. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't know. Um, you know, we talked about how the um, the real kind of uh soul question that was being driven in, into our heads near the end of that episode nine was why did Hansi do it? What's going on with Hansi? And mm-hmm. I think both of you guys observe that, yeah, this could really uh, lend a lot of kind of credence to, what we might know about Hansy, it does kind of go against, as Mike is pointing out, context and things that we know from the course of the series, or that we've heard from the course of the series about Hansy's adoption and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not a hundred percent clear if that's possible. But I think even if, even though it's even if it's just barely being introduced, it I, it may not be a coincidence that we had the scene with the maid first. Although we do get that great monologue uh, from Milligan about on a king's coronation day, he should have an act of kindness and an act of cruelty to show his subjects that he's capable of both. And so by letting the maid live in the scene before we've seen his act of kindness and he's even talked about giving her a new car and all the money that's in the, uh, the cabinet. I assume her new car belongs to Ricky. So that's
1: what I was going to say. Um, (laughs) And a nice turtleneck and gold chain for you as well. Uh, Wilma.
0: and do you like one of those? Yes. How do you feel about a severed head from a Buffalo? So, I do think a buffaloed pelt, if you will. I do like the way that this ultimately plays out. Uh, Milligan's kind of classic Milligan monologue talking about all this. Uh, And then – you know, God and monster. Um, And he mentions, he he makes, he mentions uh, in this sort of offhandedly racist way that the woman in the kitchen, uh, Ricky's like the engine. So it's like, there is a connection there for it to be clear that the woman in the kitchen is native American that, you know, if uh, Oto rumored was rumored to have uh, a kid with her, um, then his kid would be half native American. And there you go. So um, there is the connection possible with Hansi there. The last line yeah, that And Ricky by the says, way, also, too, done. you may not
2: want to throw out racial slurs to an African-American yep, male. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to say. Like, hey, when the, you're let's, trying let's to buy let's, for let's, your, let's, your
1: life. Yeah, don't badmouth minorities in front of a minority
2: next to a guy <laughs> yeah, holding a gun. <laughs> that, this guy is so stupid. But anyway, I'm you sorry guys, I you, you, my friend. You, no, you
0: guys <laughs> and your plans. Like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense in theory. But in the moment, good luck. But no, seriously, yeah. uh, you're, you're right. Like, very bad idea uh, in general. Kind of a bad idea. In in general to show up to the Gerhard compound, I think yeah. for this guy. Though we let's oh,
1: yeah. also uh, not bury the fact here that do we count this as the first time we hear Kitchenette at least make a sound with his little uh-uh, yeah, uh uh
0: yeah noise? It's,
2: it's pretty close. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he, I,
0: if, I don't want to get into it. Go
2: ahead, Jeremy. The first time, well, the first time we remember that we learned he does or is able to talk is that the only other time we see is when he whispers into. Mike's ear right so that's the only time and i think you're right i think as far as actually uttering a sound law high high enough for us to be able to hear it i think this is the only time yeah i think so too and I,
0: your mileage may vary. That's all I'll say on whether the Kitchen Brothers were as successful as Numbers and Wrench from season one or whether they were really successful uh, at uh, all.
2: I'm okay with putting my thoughts out there. I, there's no way they're better than Numbers and Wrench. I thought that <laughs> no, was, no, those no. two were so fantastic. I, the, when I did my rewatch here, uh, d- uh, this season, I, I just fell in love with them all over again and it just, it was great. So. Yeah, and we really didn't get. um, We
0: we got a little. We got a lot of numbers in ranch on their own scenes. We didn't see the the kitchens. Um, the brothers' kitchen together uh, or apart from Milligan. Really, yeah, because it would
1: be like a silent movie. Yeah. Or maybe (laughs) it wouldn't.
0: Maybe they'll talk in each other's presence, but they feel like when one of their superiors is around, they're not supposed to speak. I don't know. That's the point. We don't really know with the
1: kitchens uh,
2: what their deal was. And it didn't help that Hansy, of course, kills (laughs) kills one of them off, uh, you know, still somewhat early in the season.
1: Maybe he killed the talker yeah he may oh, have oh
0: that's what it is yeah he may yeah. have uh, well i uh, don't, don't remind me by the way <laughs> that hansi in the middle of a war uh and in the middle of getting the drop on both kitchen brothers only kills one of them don't remind me
1: um, he wants right. to send him back to have him talk but he, yeah. i don't think he realized <laughs> that he did the exact opposite times are <laughs>
0: tough Rendo. like i don't think it's gonna happen we did have that line from milligan there uh, yeah. nice tribute to uh, no country for old men and anton Chigurh. but what about ricky's last line this is what i was gonna say he asked milligan kind of offhandedly
2: you ever been to baltimore what's that about anybody have a take on that no i really don't and i have i don't even remember if i saw anybody have a great theory about it what about you mike
1: I mean, I guess unless it's another like rapid city type of red herring here where maybe the writers are just like, oh, let's just make references to other cities uh, just in case we want to use plot points like that later. Other than that, I can't really. I mean, I'm just inclined now conditioned to think of the wire whenever whenever Baltimore comes up, but but there's no (laughs) connection there. What's there actually is a connection later on that I may bring up about the wire, but definitely not here.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I'm I'm with you, Mike, that I'm conditioned to think about the wire. Clearly, that wouldn't have been kind of context at the time of the show. Uh, So I'm sure what the baltimore deal was about um and it, it's not even though as though bokeem woodbine the actor was in the wire like that would be a sort of easter egg or a silly line for you know character to utter if that was a famous actor from the wire but he's not so i don't really know what happens i should add just kinda as an aside um there is a good link on reddit uh about rapid city uh the reference that ben schmidt makes uh and that there may have been a ufo sighting in rapid city in wow. 1953 yeah, so, I saw that. Yeah, so that I think that's called the Ellsworth UFO sighting. Um, mm-hmm. and he did say it before the UFO appeared on screen. Uh, so it may or may not be linked, but, um, you're right, Mike, a lot of times they throw out things, I think to allow them the, the sort of, uh, ability to build back a season later. Um, we talked about last episode, how the Midwest book of the book of true crime in the Midwest goes all the way back to the 1820s. So they've sort of given themselves the latitude, I think if they ever wanted to, to even do a season set that far back and we'll get into what happens or what's looking at season three is looking like here. But um, anyway, uh, Milligan decides it's act of cruelty uh, that as soon as Ricky Buffaloed says, you ever been to Baltimore? He tries to draw kitchen brother with that shotgun, puts him down. Uh, and Mike says, act of cruelty and lets him bleed out. And then Mike says it's nap time. So that's great. And a um, parade. Yeah. He wants, <laughs> he wants the warm champagne that is corporate praise and a parade. He only gets half of that. And I'm not sure how warm the champagne ends up being. Uh, but yeah, we go to commercial on that and I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about Milligan's ending when we get to it. But uh, Milligan at that point is still he's wanting the quote unquote corporate praise. So uh, be careful what you wish for Mike Milligan. Uh, but anyway, we cut back to Ed and Peggy when we get back from commercial here and Hansy is at the door. He's kind of checking the handle. He's banging <laughs> Or So the door. we think <laughs> Yeah, the door is shaking. Smoke starts coming in. Peggy says he's trying to smoke us out. It's just like the movie I was watching this morning with the Gerhard fella tied up you know, and then we see kind of uh, glimpses of that movie. You guys talked, I wasn't on the podcast when we really talked about that movie. Were you surprised to see it coming back in this context? Uh, Jeremiah, was this something that you thought was a good kind of link back to that movie scene from the previous episode, from episode eight or whatever it was?
2: The thing, the only thing I really like about it is it really kind of tells you where Peggy's mind is at. I mean, you know, not only the fact that obviously she's really starting to, to lose grip completely here at this moment, but it kind of like sets you in the fact that this woman, you know, really does live kind of in a fantasy world of world that she, you know, is having a hard time, you know, separating reality out of what's not real. And it just, I think it really kind of tells the tell more for Peggy and how she is as a character where she's at mentally at this moment than anything. But I mean, I'm okay with, with this whole dream sequence coming into, or the, 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 uh, movie scene kind of comes into this the moment where she's kind of seems to be dreaming all this happening that Hansy is trying to smoke her out. I'm, I'm okay with it, but uh, I can definitely understand how maybe some people might, may not enjoy it at all. Mike, I sense that you're dying to
0: talk about this. So let's well, just yeah. like Ed, Ed dies. When you talk about where Peggy's head's not at, Ed is dead. Ed's dead, baby. Ed's dead. Peggy makes a break <laughs> for it. She gets outside. There's no fire. There's no Hansy. It's Lou. What the hell is going on here? Mike.
1: So I I I love this. Uh, I love all the Ed and Peggy stuff. This episode, I feel like they really knocked it out of the park. Just because I, I like you were talking about Jeremiah. I think her her visions of her idyllic lifestyle, which consists of her hoarding magazines and getting so wrapped up in her movie a couple episodes ago that she lets Dot escape, right. this has backfired on her. She is having a psychotic visions based on this lifestyle that she clearly wants to have and i i just love it and i'll say in terms of that the scene with the smoke uh the first time i saw it my reaction was well this is really really on the nose because i feel like fargo is a type of show that wouldn't outright say this is just like the movie right. But to have kirsten Dunn say oh this is this is just like that movie i was watching with the Gerhardt guy and then to have the actual scene from the movie on the other side of the screen i'm like wow they they're really playing dumb to their audience. But if you think about it as this is the way Peggy's imagining the scene, it makes that much more sense because she is, as Hank said, she's a little touched. She's probably more of a simpler girl. Um, but the thing that I love about this too is that I feel like it's partly sort of a her, part of her, you know, adventurous persona. But at the same time, maybe this is sort of a, a projection of the fact that she doesn't want to take responsibility for her husband's death. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's saying, oh, you it wasn't It wasn't my actions that led to Ed being shot and dying in this meat locker. It was because this guy's trying to smoke us out like the movie. He's the Nazi. He's the one who did that to us. I can't face responsibility that I caused the person who I love to die.
2: Yeah, and you know what also too, though, if you think about it, it's, and she makes this big point there towards the end that she gets excited because she thinks we're going to get out of this too. Like she feels like that. Yep. It's just going to be just like in the movie where we're, we're going to get out of this and we're going to be okay. And it's like, wow, you're still still not there girl you're still out there and it's it was great i i did enjoy it overall now once once you see the whole thing together but you're right at first i was thinking wow they're really trying to test us here as as a, as an audience but it did turn out uh, pretty well what do you think antonio did you like this whole thing
0: yeah and I think Kristen Dunst is really the kind of key to it because her performance Mm -hmm. is so over the you know over the top for Peggy she really does break when she gets outside and she's sort of feral and she's screaming and this is a Peggy who we've seen get a little excited but this is also Peggy who stared (laughs) stared down a UFO and said it's just a flying saucer Ed we gotta go and so (laughs) even when like crazy things were going down she always was very optimistic and very and I think Mike you're right I think in a sort of pie eyed kind of uh, way that ultimately was her undoing in a lot of things, but I I think seeing her break as she got outside the room, I think really carried home that a lot of what was happening was kind of in her own internal psyche, her way of dealing with the the trauma that was happening. And of course she took, this is a woman who, as you say, Mike, she hoards, like this is a woman who her personality is to kind of dream of being something else. And at that point she dreamed of something that was not happening. Um, it was conflict that because of what she'd seen in the movie, she'd gotten out of. And I, I personally don't think that, Um, This has everything to do with Peggy. I think it has a lot to do with adrenaline as well Uh, and a really horrible day that she's had. Um, They've seen so many deaths happen right in front of them. Their lives have been threatened constantly. Uh, So I think when it gets down to this and Ed is really truly about to die and he's just told her, like, it's your fault, basically. Yeah, Um, yeah, this is going to happen. Like, yeah, I'm going to manufacture smoke in my brain. Yeah, I'm going to assume that the threats are still coming. I got to tell you, though. Um, I love the stuff with Ed and Peggy. I love Kristen dust. As I said, I hate that Hansy just stopped following them. What the heck happened there?
1: That was, that was some weird, uh, weird character connection because yeah, if, if, I mean, I'm believing that when Lou shot hand or tried to shoot for Hansy, that that's when he made his getaway. Maybe he made the belief of, let me just cut all ties right there. But Yeah, connecting that, it doesn't really make sense that Hansi's been on, as you say, the war path ever since the end of episode eight, that he just decides to stop right there because he had people almost breathing down his neck.
2: I kind of got a theory, but I do agree he did decide to make the run once he had that near miss there with Lou. But I mean, you know, we feel like it seems like everyone feels like that. His whole purpose in this whole thing was to make to make sure that he finished off Ed and Peggy. But are we really convinced that that was really his main goal? I thought his main goal was to basically finish off the Gerhards. I never really thought that, you know, that Ed and Peggy really were that important other than it is kind of loose ends kind of thing. But maybe in the end, he started thinking, well, you know what? They're not really worth me getting caught over. So I'm going to get out of here while I got a shot at this because the police are right on my back. So let's 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 get out of here. We'll we'll call it a day. Hey, Ed's probably not going to make it anyway. I got a good shot on him. You know, I just I just feel like it's I don't know if it. I never felt like it was necessary for Hansi to do that because, you know, he didn't seem like he was going to kill him the first time he met him in, in the cabin. And I, I mean, I'm sure he's not happy about the fact that Peggy tried to stab him with some scissors, but I still just don't know if he is that worried. And and we're only kind of guessing that he would care about the fact that he did see him at, at a vulnerable moment. So I, I don't know. I'm just not totally sold on that. And I think if you're thinking of it as an aspect of Hansy as a person, if I'm him and I know that the police are this close to me, I think I might take my opportunity to get out there, get, get out right now as well, because probably just continuing to chase down Peggy and Ed is going to maybe lead to me getting caught. And I don't think I'd want to do that if I was him.
0: Yeah, it's tough uh, because I think I I bring it up in part because I've seen a lot of negative feedback about this on Reddit. A lot of people not really agreeing with or understanding the choice where even if in that dark kind of scene uh, in the moments where um, where, you know, uh, Ed gets shot and there's this beginning of the chase scene with Hansi, the last episode at the end really did drill down uh, that Hansi was after Ed and Peggy and it never really questioned that he wouldn't be after them. It questioned why he would be after them. Uh, and it really made very abundantly clear that killing them at that point was his sole mission and then it's gone and scuttled within the first five minutes of the episode because a cop takes a shot at him and this is a guy who has killed people, innocent bystanders police, whoever, he's been willing to take shots at people throughout and so why one shot from Lou all of a sudden changes his strategy for this when the last episode spent all the time that they spent kind of talking about how Hansy was single-mindedly pursuing them, I just feel like there's is a disconnect there uh and i i don't know uh i don't i don't know what to make of that um, but it does bother me a little bit
2: well i'm just trying to give people uh, some something to think about because <laughs> no, I I'm, just, to, I'm, yeah. I'm with you guys i it did it didn't he, the guy did seem like he was on a mission and it was kind of surprising that he just stopped midway but it, that's the only way i could justify it in my head is that maybe he just didn't get caught and that's that's where I came from. But I I, I think I totally you're probably
0: it. right. I just don't think that the show does a good, a enough good job, job yeah. of connecting well, those dots. I think that's what, what it comes if down he, to.
1: What if he was just stationed outside and thought like, wait a minute, I know this guy that can change my face. Oh, just I should have just done that the whole time. All right, let me get let me get out of here. This is silly,
0: Mike. I want you to do the rest of this podcast in your handsy impression. That yeah, that's just, my that's my
1: Hansie's inner monologue. <laughs> yes, yeah, wow.
0: Please, your Hansy's your super ego or whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Um, I, I I would like to see uh, how that played out. And I and I agree, Jeremiah. I think that that is probably nominally the explanation. I just I think the show sort of eh, hey, it's a kind of uh, half uh success in that regard, right? And only because the show was so successful with the Martin Freeman narration in the previous episode of really establishing that this guy was on a mission to kill him and really asking us to talk about why. Um, If they had really been more clear that, I mean, think about this, as you point out with the stabbing of the scissors, when Hansy's getting his hair cut, he's saying like, I'm tired of this life. Like I don't want this anymore, and it seems in that moment like maybe he's the kind of guy who is willing to walk away from it and doesn't need to go on the warpath and kill everyone. So I don't know um, exactly how that plays out, uh, but um, it, it there was a bit of a disconnect for me there uh, because they had done so much to establish that he was super intent on doing this. Uh, so it, he's a little bit Hansi's motivations are a little bit all over the, the map. We really we may need some more takes from Hansi's super ego, Mike, as we go go forward
1: here. <laughs> I just I just. Died. Need to go with the flow,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's very unusual uh, for a Minnesotan Native American uh, to have this kind of inner, inner kind of super ego voice. But yeah. I'm rolling with it; I like it.
1: I right. imagine him as like a very tiny Fonzie, which is why he has a high pitch. voice. Right. Yeah, you know, ah. I'm going to kick a jukebox.
0: <laughs> yeah. hey. hey, so hey, I, really, scare hot. I really do like that. Uh, and I don't know why he hey, has to be yo. Fonzie, but <laughs> Hansie Fonzie, there's definitely a natural connection. There, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, named, of course. He, he,
1: it, was a, it was an allusion to, uh, he, he named himself and he, so he wanted to be the closest nice. to Fonzie as he could. Illusion Michael.
0: So, uh, yeah, that's great. I like that. I like that as a theme. I like that. I also really like as a theme, the act. Actual theme from the movie Fargo, which comes rolling in here as Lou is telling, uh, you know, uh, Benjamin Schmidt that everything's going to be okay, um, and that Lou gets to be awesome Lou right here with the Fargo movie theme playing, saying, you know, I'm going to take this prisoner back to Minnesota. Anybody's got a problem with that, they can keep it to themselves. Uh, (laughs) And you know, great Lou moment here right before we go to commercial number three.
1: Yeah, and I love that too because we actually actually see a little bit of character development on. Ben as well and I guess the closest comparison we can have to Ben on this season was uh, Bob Odenkirk's character in the first season in terms of like this guy who just is completely in denial about everything that's going on and right. both these characters have really come a, come around and it definitely you know we're talking about like good guys getting good endings quote unquote at the end of Fargo seasons I feel like that's definitely in this column where this guy who's been so uh, wants to stay out of the fracas the entire time once he's actually face to face with the action he finally admits he doesn't admit to Lou but he's sort of uh in all sorts of emotional turmoil thinking like how am i gonna handle this and Lou is very simple by just saying well start with st- start at the start and and uh, at the end
2: <laughs> and I feel like done. That's, yeah.
1: yeah exactly and i, I feel <laughs> like uh watching ben kind of that's and that's the last time we see him as well and i think it's a perfect way to kind of sign off on the characters that like this guy is clearly affected by what's going on and he should be because he tried to stay out of the action and he paid for that
2: yeah too bad since we know how he turns out in in the future that maybe maybe he still could have learned a few more lessons from it because he still winds up kind of being a a bit of a jerk so yeah he's only
0: kind of a prick Jeremiah so this is the part I think that is the other side of kind of like he actually (laughs) I mean he does have some redeeming qualities he's ready to go kind of chase handsy down with Lou Uh, and yeah I think Lou leaves him with some really pretty solid advice here I do wonder if maybe um, Noah Hawley should have followed that advice Uh, but We'll, you know, we can get into that with some of the other uh, things that happen in this finale. After this third commercial, uh, Betsy and Noreen are at it again. Betsy's stirring, waking up. She keeps on asking if Lou's back. I think that's really hard to hear because Lou is not back and Lou has yet to contact Betsy. I mean, I felt like once Betsy survived into this episode, Betsy was not going to die before Lou got back. I don't know about you guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I had trepidation at first, but then I realized, like, again, this is Fargo good people usually have good outcomes and i feel like this is and we'll we'll talk about the the actual ending later on where it seems like the solverson clan has made it through relatively intact for now but yeah i was fine with it i was probably a little miffed at the beginning because i was like oh why did she collapse in the previous episode was that taken to be a fake out but i mean if you bring christian miliotti back to have this great scene where she talks about you know she she debates (laughs) camu's purpose and talks about how everyone's on this earth to do a job and they're given the time to do it i feel like it's totally worth it to keep her on
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If We're going to keep her on just for that scene. I I totally agree. But I I, it wasn't it was great for me because I felt last, and I think even mentioned on this podcast last week. I really felt like that we were probably going to end with both uh, Betsy and Hank probably living through this thing. And that was kind of at this point right now, it was kind of clear that that's probably what was going to happen. Yeah,
0: we didn't mention this as breaking news at the top, but Josh Wiggler is not with us this week. Uh, jo- I don't even know if Josh has Josh. watched the finale yet. He's on assignment, uh, but he has been texting me, uh, and Josh has been saying throughout, like, boy, I really hope that Betsy dies. Like, that's all I want out of the finale is Betsy no, really. dead. really? Yep, that's what he told me. He said he wished he'd taken her in the death draft.
2: <laughs> oh my
1: god that effed up man
0: i know can you imagine like what a it's what so a dark cool. dark guy no no josh is on assignment josh did not text me that but um <laughs> i i do want to hear his takes on this hopefully he will jump into the comments and let us know what his thoughts on some of these bigger points in this episode are um i, I you know I, I really did like this scene that develops here uh, with Noreen and Betsy. They talk about death and cancer. I feel like Betsy is kind of delivering a little bit of a mission statement like we heard in the last scene uh, with begin at the beginning and get to the end and not everything comes in between. Betsy's talking about how cancer makes her feel like a half moldy peach. That's not great. Uh Noreen wants to talk about Camus. She's been reading the myth of Sisyphus. She's been a little bit existential. She says Camus um, says knowing that we're going to die makes life absurd. Betsy weighs in on that says, You know, well, I don't think that guy is a six-year-old girl and he doesn't have any sense. Uh, We're out on this earth to do a job and we each get the time we get to do it. And we get a great split screen here with Betsy and Ed as Betsy continues and says, when this life is over, you stand in front of the Lord and you try telling him that it was all some Frenchman's joke. Uh, And I thought that this was a really kind of a good scene that really explains, I think, more than anything the sort of ethos of the Solversons of Betsy and Lou that you have a job to do your, you know, your job may be to be the best mother that you can be to Molly Solverson or to be a good cop and a good husband or to be whatever it is, whatever that's your job. You have the time that you have and it's important that you do your job in the time that you have. And I think, I mean, this is just great to see Noreen uh, and Betsy kind of talking about death and Betsy really staring down the face at, at, of death and having these things to say. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of contrast that can be drawn um, with the way Simone kind of reacted when she knew her fate was coming, uh, with the way other characters... Didn't get the opportunity like Floyd uh, to really weigh in on their direct death, but did get to weigh in on the dying of an empire and felt like they had a job. Floyd felt like she had a job to do and that it was sort of her die was cast and she had to do what she did. So I thought this was a a really kind of fantastic scene from a thematic standpoint like we talked about at the outset of this podcast that thematically some of the scenes in this episode really hammered home some of the things that were really good about this season.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. see it fit definitely fits definitely fits thematically absolutely like we talked about and I also like too because this is this is definitely the kind of reaction and comments that I think I would expect from someone like Betsy you know you know when you live in the midwest I mean that's how we kind of you know midwestern people that's how we kind of look at life a lot you know and I know I even do myself a lot of times so I thought it was a beautiful line it was just done very perfectly for what really fits the character so well and i really enjoyed it a lot
1: and let's also contrast this to this, to Peggy's, you know, big diatribe that we're going to experience in about five minutes, but she's talking about how, you know, she can't do it all and how she feels like she's inferior. And this is, I feel like Peggy is a type of person that might take this message completely the wrong way and say, yes. oh, I have a job to do. My job is clearly to actualize myself and be more important than I am right now. Whereas, even though we've seen cases where Betsy has been able to, you know, she spotted some important clues at the Waffle Hut early on in this season, she's a person who's very content with her position. And I would call her one of the most grounded characters that we've had this entire season because she knows what she wants and she's succeeding at that.
0: Yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's great. And I think that you're right about the juxtaposition to Peggy because the next scene of course is a scene with Peggy and Lou in the cruiser. Like we saw Lou in the split screen, we we cut to the cruiser Um, Peggy wants to go to prison in California She's California dreaming all the way And she wants to maybe see a pelican Wouldn't that be great Uh, And Lou gets into this story about family And about, uh, you know, he tells it ultimately Because he wants to explain that he kind of short shrifted Ed By really making it seem obstinately that he didn't know Why Ed was so dead set on protecting his family Um, But Lou tells a story which is a true story And Jeremiah, I know you'll have the information on that but it's a story about the fall of Saigon. Lu was there when it was happening. Their allies, the South Vietnamese, were trying to get out of the country with as many people as they could, along with the Americans. Uh, and he tells a story about a chopper that couldn't land on a boat. There wasn't enough room for it. Um, there was a guy with his whole family on this chopper, South Vietnamese guy. Uh, they, he gets the chopper close enough to the boat that the family jumps out uh, and they're safe. And then the guy takes the, the the chopper and sort of hovers it over the water, changes out of his flight suit, and then jumps out of the chopper and survives as the chopper is going down. All of that to save his family.
2: Uh, Jeremiah, that is a true story oh, that that 's what I heard online. I unfortunately did't have a chance to really dig into it deep to see all the details, everything, but apparently that 's from what I understand is it, there was a, a story that was very similar to this that they have may have purposed here in the uh, in the episode, which is fine, and I think it 's great because it really does set us in the mindset of where Lou is at. We get the continued conversation he has about the fact that you know he you know it doesn 't seem to be it 's not really a burden for a man that 's what it's just how we are. And that's, that's, that's our, our mission in life. Right. And he, uh, he, takes that with a badge of honor and so he obviously is relating to the fact that Ed would have done anything to protect uh, his his family which in this case would have been Peggy and he was definitely annoyed by the fact that it seemed like maybe Peggy was already kind of moving on at the at the moment so I uh, wish I had all the details but yeah apparently that this uh, was kind of related to a, a real story in real life. Well, well
0: yeah we'll link on, on the page at Post Show Recaps there is like a two minute YouTube clip from a great kind of PBS American Experience film that is this story and it's called One by One We Jump Out um, and I, you know, you guys, I, I haven't watched it, uh, you know, the the clip, but I know that I've seen it posted a couple of times, and I've read the comments about it. So uh, we'll post it on the show page. It is, it is the story as it happened. We know this show um, sort of borrows a lot from either its own catalog to varying degrees of success. We're about to get into that. Uh, but also from true stories and things that maybe happened, like uh, the reports of UFO sightings and things like that. So it, it is a great kind of story to place and localize Lou in this sort of somewhat uh, notorious or famous event that happened at the end of the Vietnam War. And it's it certainly has stuck with him. Um, there is this, this scene, Jeremiah, you kind of alluded to it, uh, but I, I really want to get into it because ed ties it back into the myth of sisyphus and he Mm -hmm. says like this is our rock that we all push up the hill protect the family no matter what uh we call it a burden but it's our privilege as men to do this and then because we've sort of started talking about gender roles um peggy gets into her kind of view of her role in the world uh and i think she starts expressing what we in the modern days would recognize as some very uh She has some very valid points about the expectations society places on women, um, expecting them to be really good mothers and also career oriented. Uh, And at the time, especially that Peggy was in this sort of turmoil of women entering into the workforce and still occupying the traditional gender roles uh, from the uh, the generation before it. Um, And I think that's really tough for Peggy. Uh, Lou throughout is not really putting up with this. Uh, and at the end of the day, he really kind of interrupts her her kind of sad view of of her life as she's experienced it by saying, like, um, you're faulty or, you know, you're not you're not you're not faulty, you're not inferior. Lou basically interrupts and says people are dead, Peggy, mm-hmm. uh, and he doesn't really want to let her have that. I, I know that, you know, I'm not really interested in what you guys think about what Peggy was saying. Um, we can say what is what is. Mike, I'm curious. What do you think the show wants us to think about this interaction between Peggy and uh, Peggy and Lou? Who's in the right here? If either one is, is Lou kind of stuck in the past? I'm, what do you think the show wants us to think about this exchange?
1: I think the show wants us to side with Lou here personally. And again, I totally agree with you that I think Peggy makes very valid points specifically about gender roles in that time period. And we see it echoed before when Floyd talks to Simone about, you know, the role that they have to play in the family, but Lou makes these points and we even see it beforehand where she says, you know, I, I want, I, I, I didn't want to be defined by someone else's experience. And then, you know, this stupid guy, if only the stupid died and not come out and Lou says, Oh, you mean the victim? Yeah. And I feel like the, the, point we're trying to make here is that Peggy's really trying to soften the impact that she's made on this season and this course of events by saying that she was doing, that she was, you know, she was rationalizing it, that she was justified in doing what she did. But Lou is really trying to ground the situation by saying, like, no, you led to these, like, mass slaughterings of all these people because of what you decided to do. And I think she really, even though Ed, you know, told her that beforehand, the meaning still needs to be hammered home to her how culpable she is for these things. So, I mean, personally, I am sort of siding with Lou here, and even, even though I do believe in the values immensely that Peggy is trying to is is believing in and working for, I feel like she's sort of using them for the wrong reasons. If that makes sense, and that she's trying to to sort of justify them right now, I feel like is very faulty.
2: Yeah, you're right. It's the wrong argument to have at the moment, and but that again just kind of tells us the mindset of where Peggy's at. She she's not really understanding exactly what Lou's trying to say. You know, we, which is funny because, you know, Hank ends the episode with talking about miscommunication. Here. But I mean, Lou, Lou makes some really good points here that, you know, OK, we you know, I got it. You know, yes, I, I totally understand the expectations that women have. And, and that's obviously definitely a problem. And maybe it was a problem just for you. Totally understand that. But what he's trying to say is, listen, but your actions here, woman, cause some serious problems and you need to, like, wake up and realize that. And so I, I agree. She was she was having a wrong argument at the time. Uh how, how did you feel about San Antonio? yeah, it's tough. um, it's tough
0: because I don't know um I don't know uh I agree with what you guys are saying. I think that you know Lou was really trying to step in, and the show probably did want us to side with Lou ultimately that um that, you know, people died and it doesn't really matter why you were upset or it doesn't really matter why you did what you did. It happened uh, and the person was a victim and people did die. And I think if she'd been saying like, uh, you know, things about – uh you know, my medicine uh, or I was tired or, uh, you know, I was sick that day or making kind of the excuses that we make about other things that we do, um, then it's fine. I think the problem that I have is I think she's articulating some very valid points about society's view of women and about why she specifically Uh, had been so, in what Hank labeled as touched, why she'd been so personally kind of troubled, why Lifespring was a thing that would resonate with men and women um, is because people throughout the course of this season, as we've seen them, uh, have been in very difficult places. Uh, They've been looking for answers. We see Lou talking to Ronald Reagan. We see the guy at the gas station looking skyward, uh, talking about UFOs. Um, We see other people really struggling, uh, and Ed kind of talks about that in his uh, dying words like, you know, things are good. Don't really worry about what's coming. And Lou's had a really tough time um, focusing on what he's doing because his wife is dying of cancer. And we see what Hank talks about with when his wife died, how he responded about communication. So we have seen a lot of people with a lot of personal issues in this season of Fargo. And I think Kristen Dunt's issues aren't just personal. They are societal, and they are about the mores and the rules and the gender norms and the gender roles and all of it. And I think it's unfortunate that the show gives her that moment to articulate all these very, very, very valid points about the role of women, mm-hmm. only to have a character that we do sympathize with, really just dismiss them and say, "I mean, Jeremiah, I agree with you that I like to think that Lou thinks I hear you. I understand your point. He doesn't say that though. That's he true. doesn't say he's that's angry true. about it, actually. And I kind of agree with you that I think his character probably does understand that um because I want to think that about Lou Silverson, mm-hmm. but he just says, You know, people died. I don't want to hear it, basically. Yeah, and I think that that's tough because, I think you give Peggy that moment where she really is truly articulating something that shouldn't make anybody into a killer, but you can understand why it made her so restless and so uh, listless. And so kind of the things that she has been throughout uh, the course of this season. Um, and it's just sort of knocked away and uh, dismissed uh, about the things that have happened. And I think that's tough.
2: Yeah, it's but a maybe, very, maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, you know, it's just a very human reaction, you know, a very normal human reaction. I think that Lou's having, unfortunately, but you're right. It's, it's bad time because of the fact that yeah, Peggy did have some very good points. And I'm sorry, Mike, yeah, that's, I why I, that's, you. What, no, that's
0: why I was, that's why I was interested in what you guys think the show wants us to think, because gotcha. uh, we can feel the way we feel, but I'm just trying to figure out what their intent was. Mike, what do you think?
1: I mean, I think this also connects back to the whole idea of miscommunication as well. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, Peggy unfortunately ran into is that she is talking with a police officer. And in a police officer's eyes, specifically in a person like Lou Salverson's eyes, the law is the law. Mm -hmm. If you break the law, you are culpable for it. You are guilty. You are a bad person. And so Peggy has broken the law. You finally caught her. People died because of her. I feel like in his eyes... She is a bad person because she has broken the law. And so, again, there's a miscommunication there where while she's trying to, she is pouring her heart out and really trying to tell him what she believes about what's wrong with the world today. He's not having it because he already has kind of written her off as this is a criminal that I'm transporting.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. But but we just got done hearing Lou tell a story about why he understands why people would do crazy things to protect their family and the people that they care about. And so he's willing to write it off for Ed and he's willing to say that he failed Ed and not understanding or sharing or showing that he understood why Ed would do what Ed did to protect his family. But he's not willing to do the same thing for Peggy. I I don't know. I think mm. it's difficult. Good and point. Good point. I, I think that. I think that. My my issue is ultimately, I, I think that you're, you're right. There is a lot about the communication issues here. You're right, Jeremiah, that he's in the moment. He is who he is. I think everybody's kind of right about this. I just don't know. And I'd be interested to hear from the listeners in the comments mm-hmm. what they think the show was trying to establish with this scene, because it's great material played incredibly well by Kristen Dunst. Like she really does a fantastic job. I mean, we can't forget that she starts this monologue. This starts this scene by talking about, I want to go to California to federal prison <laughs> yeah. so I could see a pelican. It's like, get your head out of the clouds. Like you are <laughs> a little bit like, you know, you there's, there's something wrong with you. You're a little miscalibrated. If in the moment, this is what you're thinking about. Not all the horrible things that happened, not poor Ed that died, not that you failed him, not that your actions did this. Like, so there is a problem with Peggy. That is for sure. But I just don't, I don't like to think that it, the problem is rooted in or the, the, the show's suggestion is the problem is rooted in her view of society's views of women. I think that that's difficult. I think that's a really tough kind of scene. The scene is fascinating to me, uh, and I'd love to hear what everyone thinks the intent
1: was. Yeah. Should we move on to another fascinating scene, Antonio? Well, yeah, we can.
0: I, we, we we can't. We we will get there in just one minute because I I've got in my notes worst scene in the finale by a long shot. Before we get there, we do have Luke call home. I think this is a great scene. He's trying to keep it together while he's on the phone with Noreen. Um, he's finding out finally what happened to Betsy when he's just gotten done talking about how important family is to people and why it means something to him. He's been out there doing the job that he's supposed to do while his wife is literally collapsing and nearly dying. So this is really tough for. Lou and the song California Dreaming is playing Mike I know you said uh, there's some really great songs in the finale this was a great one to me because Peggy's been California Dreaming California has always been this sort of magical wonderland to her like uh, it's just kind of she's going to California in her mind constantly throughout the course of this season so I think it's fascinating to hear this song and the cover of it play here
2: absolutely I'll just say for a second? what's up with this particular phone booth? You know, I, I, here's what I don't understand is that it's it's only about 30 to 35 minutes from Sioux Falls to uh, Laverne, Minnesota. And I just, I kind of see, he can't, Get all the way home before you can call. I mean, is that true? Did you Google map that, Jeremiah? (laughs) Yeah, yes, I did. Did you use 1979 travel? Um, No, I did not. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure that the path (laughs) of of between the two towns probably hasn't changed much. There's a there's a little highway that goes right through between the two towns. I I think that was probably pretty much the same in 1979.
1: And I was thinking when he said to to Peggy stay in the car, I was waiting. Yeah. I was waiting for him to get on the phone to turn his back, and she just jets right out of the car.
2: Me too. Uh, and, I,
1: and I was thinking, oh my god, Lou, <laughs> what are you Lou, doing? What did you? What are you doing? But it turned out that she stayed in the car. She she made her bed, and now she's finally lying in it. But for a second, I was definitely thinking like, oh no, is she gonna? Is she gonna try to escape? Is she gonna ride off a lot and Lester Nygaard on the jet ski and fall into the lake again? <laughs> oh my
2: gosh. Oh
0: yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even think about that. Jeremiah, you're right. Thirty seven minutes. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's um, something
0: it's like
2: not very far. It's crazy. That's right? via
0: I ninety West. So even if I ninety, which I think was open at that time, yeah. even if he's not taking I ninety, I feel like he's
2: getting there pretty quick. No, and, and so. in all in all joke aside, honestly in his particular case, this moment, it, it does make sense because of the fact that he is, I'm sure, concerned about his wife all the time. And I'm sure, he know, he knows it's been a while since he's contacted him. So maybe he just couldn't wait. He knows he's, he's going to have to go to the station anyway to check in uh, Peggy and take care of all that paperwork. But, you know, it, it just it's just one of those things that's just like, oh, really? You, you can't just get to the office first and then call? I don't know yeah who it, knows I think I you know stylistically, I mean, I love that shot I mean that that little area there is pretty cool, so maybe, yeah. maybe he
1: maybe he just wanted any opportunity to get out of the car away from Peggy <laughs> <At that laughs> Probably point. a good point
0: I Mike. mean I'm
2: not sure why he
1: wasn't
0: <laughs> still worried about Hansy trailing her, but I guess we find out very quickly in the next season or in the next scene here why he shouldn't have been worried. We cut the commercial number four and we come back, we're at what looks like a little park with a couple of young children playing baseball. Um, we see Hansy sitting on a bench and watching them, and then some kind of fixer comes up. Hansy's got a big bandage on his face, um, and the the kind of fixer says, "You know, great empires fall and are forgot. Uh, and the fixer hands him Hansi kind of a new identity, and the identity on the social security card says Moses Tripoli. And thanks to Jeremiah's detective work earlier in this season on the podcast. We know Mr. Tripoli, uh, is, is the guy from season one who is the, the, the leader of the Fargo Mafia, the, the kind of, weird giant man. He's a giant man. He has a giant beard. He seems super tall. He's a Hulk. He has kind of a weird, kind of vaguely ethnic, maybe Russian voice, and he he actually talks about, you know, head and bag, all this stuff. He's eating this fish. He's a corpulent dude, Um and he's the head of the kind of Fargo Mafia, and he gets killed by Billy Bob Thornton in that crazy scene where Billy Bob video games his way through mm-hmm. the whole building. Um, I, what?
1: I, uh, uh, <laughs>
0: Uh, is this Hansy? Like this is Hansy. Hansy becomes it's, it's, that guy.
1: It's Hansy. It's and it's insane. We had a we have we have a face off going on. We're gonna put my face on an old white guy's face. It's th- this is this is insanity. This is pure insanity. I I kind of love how insane it is, but it is breaking. And this is a show that just brought out a UFO last
2: episode, but it's breaking like all the rules. <laughs> Jeremiah, what do you think? Well. I'm lost. I think maybe he just, you know, he just ate a lot of the wrong foods for a while, and you know, the facelift thing just didn't go very well because it's the 1980s. And let's face it, plastic surgery's come a long ways, you know. But by by that time, unfortunately, his face was just a little too messed up, and uh, you know, that's just that's how it goes. <laughs> I, I listen. I totally understand why everybody has some issues with this. I I have some issues with it as well. But it is what it is. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with they love the idea because they explain what the name means and how these different empires fall. And it kind of has this big circle, you know, because, you know, Hansi takes out the Gerhardt family. and Then eventually, you know, Hansi's new uh, he, he becomes the new boss of the mob. And then, of course, we know that later on that Lauren Marvel, of course, takes him out and kills him. And then a um, new person, I'm sure, will take over the mob. It, they, I'm sure they love this theme, right? With the cycle of empires being falling and then and then someone else picks it up and takes over. But ah, it does make it really hard for us to buy the fact that the the, the two characters, the and and this futurist, the future Moses does not look anything like uh, Hansi. So it, I definitely is going to be hard for people to buy
0: yeah you guys didn't rant enough about this so I'm going to really kill it here Um, people on Reddit have been seemingly divided into two camps on this there's the people for whom this is just a horrible twist and those people they don't like it because it doesn't make physical sense Hansi in the scene mentions he needs a face man Uh, the the fixer does say like I'm assuming you're going to want more than a skin peel uh, you're going to want some structure change you're going to want all these things so he sets it up like this is something that can happen um, but I'm not buying that and then there's some other people that are upset about it because if it's true that means Hansi is essentially a red shirt at the hands of Lorne Malvo and the way it's been built up uh, that Hansi versus Malvo has been a discussion people are having who's the more stone cold badass who's the better killer all these things and people I think sort of fantasize that at some point in their careers maybe they would have faced off and maybe Hansi's still alive in the context of Fargo season one and maybe we're going to see Hansi in Fargo season three because he's such a breakout character and maybe we're going to see more that. It turns out that the show is very clear about wanting this to be Moses Tripoli, and I'm saying this that Hansie and Mr. Tripoli are the same person, not only because the context is there, but because in interviews after the season uh, they've made it clear uh, the you know Mr. McLarnon who plays uh, Hanzy has said it. Uh, Mr. Hawley, the creator of the show, has said it. Uh, they've established in these postseason interviews that it is not open to interpretation. Some people on Reddit, the second group of people, I'll call the Fargo apologists. These are the people who will defend every choice the show makes because it's the best show ever and it never does wrong. They were saying, no, no, Mr. Tripoli is actually the guy who is in the scene with Hanzy. Doesn't he look more like the guy who we see in season one? They look very similar, uh, and. They have made it unequivocally clear in the post uh, finale interviews that Hansi is intended to be that gangster from season one uh, who we see eating the fish and who we see ultimately the, the biggest contextual clue is when the fixer asks Hansi, what are you going to do about Kansas city? Hansi delivers that line where he says, maybe I'll start an empire of my own, not apprehended dead. Don't care. Heavily guarded. Don't care into the sea head in a bag dead. There's the message. That is the exact line that is delivered by Mr. Tripoli about what needs to happen with the killer of Sam Hess. Even if it was something that was, you know, a um, I forget what the exact phrasing is, but the debate is going on in season one that maybe Hess wasn't killed by another mafia thing. Maybe it was a my passion killing. And this guy doesn't care if it's sexual. It doesn't doesn't care why he wants him dead. There's the message. And it's the same exact thing that's said. And to further the contextual clues, just one more in case you in case you're still one of those people. I'm still wondering all the interviews. We see numbers in Reg here playing baseball. The young there's two young boys throwing baseball around. They're communicating in sign language. They're fighting with each other about not wanting to play. Two bullies come up to them in the middle of the scene as Hansi's watching. And the scene ends with Hansi marching out toward the bullies with his hand on his knife as the, the bullies pull off of num- Young Numbers and Young Wrench from season one. So not only do they establish that Hansie is Mr. Tripoli, they establish how I think the origin story of Numbers and Wrench being loyal to Tripoli's gangsters were. And so that mm-hmm. is unequivocally what Fargo is going for in this scene. And I, it's ridiculous to me.
2: But whatever. So I mean, what I, is I, I, so what is the most part that's most ridiculous? Just because of the fact that he that he does physically does not look anything like the same guy? what what, what exactly for sure troubles you the most? That troubles me the most
0: for sure. Okay. okay. Is it it's is it's a Nicolas Cage kind of scenario, John Travolta Nick Cage scenario. Okay. Um that troubles me the most. I also don't like what it says about Hanzi that we spent a season delving into this guy. Uh, And we've this great kind of troubled, uh, affected kind of all the things that Hansi is. And then we we know how he ultimately dies, which is just as a red shirt
2: to Lorne Malvo. Okay, I'll I'll explain why that doesn't necessarily bother me is because I like this this idea this theme that maybe you know as time goes on you get lazy like so you can make a fair argument that maybe part of the reason why the Gerhards put themselves in the position is because they got too lazy because they got complacent about where their position was and that they didn't have to be feared by anything and that you know ha- you know, Hansi that maybe 26 27 years or whatever it is later is also complacent in his position and he's not this badass anymore you know the guy's way way older and he's just lazy and, and all Obviously he has a maybe had a weight issue perhaps and is 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 he's in a whole different place in his life, and he's not that same badass handsy that we could see in this season that he's tragically gotten to this point where he's so used to being the boss that he doesn't have to do anything, and that eventually causes demise when you got a, a hungry crazed lunatic like Lauren Mavo who's you know just likes to watch the world burn and he and, he, and unfortunately for Tripoli, he he gets burnt yeah I understand what
0: you're saying I just don't buy it for Hansy because Hansy has told us I don't want this life anymore so I don't I can't imagine that he wants to go and establish his own criminal enterprise that is so successful over a period of the next 15 years that he becomes fat and lazy and six inches taller uh, and his (laughs) facial structure totally changes and his skin color over his whole body totally changes uh, and his hair texture uh, totally changes and his ability to grow facial hair probably totally changes and all of that is different even though it's nineteen eighty. Uh, and science is not the science that we have now, which still couldn't do this. I just don't I, I, I think that I agree with you, Jeremiah, that, you know, you're right. Um, that could be a story. I just don't think it's a very fitting story for Hansy. I don't think that that's mm. the Hansy that we know. And I think the biggest problem that I have is that we have an inconsistent Hansy. I think this is the product of. Uh, asking us to delve deeply into his motives and then mm-hmm. having him just leave it all behind. I think this is the product of Hansi saying, I don't want this life anymore. And then asking us to believe that the minute he gets a chance, he reestablishes that life. I just, I feel like they the Hansi through line as a character is just not satisfactory to me, especially if it ends with him getting fat and lazy, because I agree <laughs> with you that there's an interesting point to that. It just isn't an interesting point to me
2: for Hansi. Yeah. But I just, I just think it's, that's a long, it's a long time. and, it, it, yeah, you can get taller over those years. You're right. He probably well, went through a gross. Man, let's well, go, we let's go with the taller thing. How
1: do
0: you yes. know he's six inches? What did I miss here? I saw the I, guy walking down the street. I mean, you see the guy like a couple of scenes. So oh, that's right. Okay, we did see a him walking guy. down the street. He's I forgot not, about that. He's I mean, he's, maybe he's handsy on stilts. I don't know. Mike, what do you think <laughs> about all this?
1: So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you in terms of. uh the most egregious part of this is obviously the logistics behind it. And listen, Fargo is not a, a, a typical type of show where you can you can grouse over details because the Coens do definitely do have some sort of surreal aspects to them. I mean, again, this is a show that pulled out a UFO as a sort of Deus Ex Machina last episode. But I think that it, it's more egregious in that it's sort of is a little more offensive to these character as he just talked about that. Here is this guy who says, "I want to be done with this life." And then I'm saying, well, my new life is actually going to be doing exactly what I was a part of beforehand, but maybe a little bit better. I mean, it is interesting that he ended up becoming a white guy, because I think that sort of played into his whole idea that he felt marginalized as a Native American. Mm -hmm. And I actually do enjoy the whole numbers and wrench thing as well, because it's very cyclical in that Otto Gerhardt took him in off the street when he was seven years old. And it seems like he's doing the same thing with numbers and wrench as well. So it's it's fun to see those sort of beats replay. But in terms of like thinking out Hansi's psychology specifically, I mean, I guess I can understand maybe if you don't want to leave the Midwest because that's the only territory, you know, but again, if you want a new life, you probably shouldn't be staying in the same business, you know, it's because you're going to end up. And I mean, I don't know. I felt like this transition maybe would have landed a little better with me if maybe for a second, they had flashed to that scene in Fargo season one. You know, if we saw immediately what the transition was, that would have maybe paid off a little bit more for me just so we can see that if Jeremiah, if that transition indeed does happen where he becomes more complacent, more lazy, uh, puts up the blindness to everything else that's going on around him. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that happen. I, I think that's filling in way too many blanks personally. They, the, the, the creators want us to assume way too much if that's the path they want us to go down.
0: Yeah, this is a show that's guilty of that all the time. It's guilty of us filling in blanks with leaving one kitchen brother alive. It's guilty of us filling in blanks why Mike Milligan shoots up the Gerhardt compound and kills all the red shirts that are standing out front, but doesn't go in and actually shoot up the people that he's been assigned to kill, the Gerhardt family. Uh, he accidentally kills Otto, but he doesn't kill all of them uh, when they're clearly at war at that point. I mean, this is a show that is constantly asking us to do this and i think this is a show that pushes the envelope and i said on this podcast last week in the middle of my biggest rant that this uh, podcast will ever hear that i appreciate that the show takes chances and that it does push the envelope because not too many shows on tv are doing that i just think that a lot of the times this show swings and misses and i think that you 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 do I think everyone does themselves a disservice when they bend over backwards to try to credit the show when it's not yeah. due. Um, and that's all I'll say is that it's okay for a show to be the best made show currently airing on TV and to be so cinematic and beautiful and gorgeous and have incredible acting and occasionally have some lazy writing or some bad writing. It's yeah, totally fine. Absolutely.
1: For that. Let's look at the show that just won best drama at the Emmys last year who had a very problematic season. I think uh, and I think it's great because, as you just said, I think it means that the writers are not getting lazy. Noah Hawley, and I'm sure we'll talk about season two as a whole later on. He took a lot of chances, and and you know when you when you throw a lot of pitches out, some are hits and some are in some you whiff on, and I feel like. This might have been a whiff, which is unfortunate because I don't think they maybe I don't think they predicted that Hansi would kind of become one of these breakout characters of the season. But because he's kind of been put in such a spotlight to have it whiff so badly is uh, is, you know, it's magnified. And that's not great in terms of his image.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I like what you're saying, Jeremiah, about how you could make an entire Three seasons of Fargo that show Moses Tripoli at very points in his career, uh, and and we we see that transition and we see it happen. But I agree with you, Mike, that right now it's just a lot for us to fill in. And they, I mean, when they wrote this show, um, then when they filmed this, they had not been renewed for a season three. So I think that you have to presume that um, they were, if they were comfortable with this being their finale, finale, the series finale, then that would be the end of Hansy. They may not get. Uh, we know, we know, season. three is going to take place in 2010. So we know it's going to take place a few years after the events of the previous of season one. So we know Mr. Tripoli is not alive. Then um, is it possible that they're going to pull this thing where Billy Bob doesn't actually kill him in the building? Cause we don't really see it. Um, and we're going to get more Mr. Tripoli. I mean, I don't think they have any guarantee they're ever going to be able to tell this story. So I do think it asks us to fill in a lot of the blanks right now uh, in where this is for Hansy's character arc. And honestly, I don't think that they've done a great job with Hansy's character throughout. They've done a great job making him this sort of Terminator on a T-1000 killer. And they've done a great job, I think, of showing why a lot of those killings are motivated, where they come from, the things he's experienced in his life. But, you know, we saw him kill Floyd. We don't know why. You know, we, we don't really know the full details on that. And now he has this huge vendetta against Kansas City but presumably when he's Moses Tripoli is working at least not against them. I, I just don't know where all that ends up. And it's just too much for me to fill in. Uh, and, I, and I want to move on only because there are two more, I think problematic scenes for some people. I'm okay with both of them, but I think your mileage may vary. So let's get on with it. Um, we see Mike Milligan meeting with, uh, with Arkin, uh, with the Kansas city kind of guy looks like Joe LaTrulio with a shaved head and those big glasses on. Um, and uh, Adam Arkin's giving him a corporate job in the mafia, uh, wants him to maximize revenue. He tells him to get rid of his Western style and cut his hair. The seventies <laughs> are over. This is the future. You sooner, the sooner you realize this is the money business and that's the only business ones and zeros, the better you're going to be. I want you to focus on profit and loss reports and infrastructure. Uh, he talks about Donahue, rejiggling, rejiggering the mailroom and saving uh, you a million dollars a quarter and being given an entire California. He talks about health insurance and 401k <laughs> And this is all very heartbreaking to Mike Milligan, who is a cowboy and a killer and a good earner in his mind. He's a gangster who's being given a desk job and he's being told to play golf. Jeremiah, is this a satisfying end to you for Mike Milligan?
2: Honestly, probably not. Not completely. I mean, it's not the way I wanted to see it go out. But I mean, there there is, of course, a lot of a lot of irony to it. And I do think that I could see why some people may be, may be OK with it, but yeah, I just I guess you you really hate to see that for Mike because now it makes his character seem even more tragic because now the guy is stuck in a life that he didn't want. You know, I don't know. It was it was a little hard for me to swallow a little bit, but, you know. I, I get it. I, I get where they're going. I mean, this is this is the this is where the future is going. You know, we're heading into the 1980s. The the you can make a fair argument the 1980s, the birth of the corporation. I mean, where the corporate world really takes off. And and that's exactly where, you know, you could say that the organized crime is going. And and it does in a way, it really does. So, it, it fits it fits this it does fit the theme. It does fit where we're heading as a society and where the mob is heading but it was kind of like ah poor mike that sucks (laughs) but Mm -hmm. uh you know maybe maybe i'm just saying it because you know i love this character and i really would hope that you know he could still be on the streets and act like a king and you know give give out more uh cruel and unusual punishments to people, but you know, unfortunately that's not what's going to be for him. And the big question I have though, is, is do we even, do we buy that? He's going to even continue to do this. I mean, is this the yeah. kind of guy who's going to do this? You think? Yeah, that's a good question. Mike is, are we going to get a
0: Marlowe Stanfield, more of a Marlowe Stanfield ending out of Mike Milligan than we see on screen?
1: That's exactly the comparison I was gonna make. Oh my god, I'm so happy you made <laughs> the comparison because that, that is because and maybe that's why I'm more satisfied with this ending than somebody than than like Jeremiah is because that was all I could think about when I was looking. At this was spoiler alert for the the wire the ending of Marlo Stanfield slash a little bit of Avon Barksdale as well is very similar to this about how you pull off this guy who's from the streets he's very used to getting his hands dirty and doing almost grunt work you put him into this corporate setting where he's so you sits on his hands, and he has to do more of the money stuff, the ones and the zeros, as uh, Hamish alludes to, and he has a lot of problems with it because he's someone who has been raised on the streets and is and has to work like that. And I think that, well, first of all, in speaking towards the idea that you know, it, will he stay in this? I think he has to because I'm pretty sure. You know, he's involved in this criminal organization now. If he tries to leave, I do not think they're going to let him go as a loose end. True. I'm pretty sure he's going to he's gonna end up in a body bag if he tries to leave this company. But that being said, I mean, I agree that it's it sucks for the character. Just like, again, it kind of sucked for Marlo Stanfield. But at the same time, I feel like it's a perfect allegory for the way... The times they are changing, you know, and and you talked a lot about this in your podcast beforehand about how this season was a perfect um, sort of microcosm of of post-war life and how, you know, the how the world was trying to adjust to, to these inherent evils that exist in the world. And I feel like this is yet another microcosm of the transition that the world is making into this more regimented and less humanistic world you know technology is improving we're going to have football games on handheld devices soon enough apparently and so i feel like human to human interaction and miscommunication might occur more and i feel like this is a total representation of this i mean he's gonna be playing golf playing you know having artificial conversations kissing people's asses and i feel like it's Really interesting story for Mike Milligan as well, because if you're going back to this whole idea of the grass is always greener, because he's been so marginalized for so long based on both his position and his ethnicity, he has been working so hard to get that golden goose to work his way to the top. Now that he's at the top, he's looking down and realizing, oh, maybe the bottom's a little bit better. You know, he's at the top and he's realizing, you know, you don't know always what you've got till it's gone. You know, they sort of pave paradise and put up a golf course here that he he's feeling like, oh, maybe I ha- maybe I did have it, but at least I enjoyed what I was doing beforehand, even though I was under the thumb of somebody. Now I actually am in a position of power, but now I'm realizing that that's not a, what I want at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, and he and he's a survivor, you know? I mean, look like he did The Undertaker. When he knew The Undertaker was coming to take his job, and he was able to react to that quickly, and I do agree, Mike is going to a- adjust, he's going to fit in, he's going to do what he has to do, but I it was a disappointment but yeah i definitely i definitely think it f- fits everything perfectly and you know hey who doesn't want to le- who doesn't want to learn how to play golf right yeah i guess you're right i don't know it
0: it <laughs> is difficult
2: because i
0: i mean it- We've already seen the way Milligan's been treated. There's the racism that's been latent uh, in. The, this is a guy that they he was targeted for murder by the very same boss who's now touting him for promotion. Uh, and I think that that's very difficult. He did wish for the corporate praise like we talked about. I do. I do agree with both of you guys and pave paradise and put up a golf uh, golf course is I think a good line because. I think that is the theme, right? Uh, a lot of the themes that have been kind of bubbling to the surface about this season of Fargo in the 70s transitioning into the 80s. And as we will see what happens in the 80s, there is a lot of that. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a lot of corporatization of what's happening. And when they talk about the mafia being ones and zeros in a money business and efficiencies and these sorts of things, I think that that's valid. I think that that fits not only in the context of what actually was happening at the time, but also what was happening in the context of the show. So I I actually really like this ending for Mike Milligan. I love the character, so I would prefer to have an ending that was more, I don't know, celebratory in line with kind of the great aspects of what we really like about Mike Milligan and not this just sort of despair filled kind of fluorescent lights and broom closet sized uh typewriter office kind of ending that we got. Um, but I think it does. It is in perfect keeping with the things that we've established throughout the season. Just like Ed. um he didn't get uh, what he wanted. He didn't get his dream. And his dream was, I think, a little outdated and not really something that was easy to occupy in the modern world. That said, I think the themes of Fargo uh, is They're very much rooted in these small towns that do still exist in Minnesota. You drive through Minnesota, a lot of small towns are killed in other places. Uh, You put a Walmart in and it kills Main Street, and that's happened in Minnesota. But Minnesota also does still have a lot of mom and pop small towns. And so I think that there's room for that in other places. And I do think it's interesting that when we see 2006 Fargo in the context of season one, um, if we have Mr. Tripoli leading the the mob there, that the mob seems to be rooted in Fargo and not necessarily in Kansas City. And so maybe there's a season where this doesn't work out well. Maybe Milligan goes back into the field. We don't really know exactly what happens. But it doesn't necessarily work out perfectly for Kansas City and their expansion unless Hansi starts playing ball with Kansas City, which is totally in opposition to the message he delivered to the fixer. Uh, and that's another mm-hmm. problem if you make Hansi Mr. Tripoli, is that unless a major mob war happens with Kansas City and Fargo, then he just gets on board and is an arm of Fargo, like the Gerhards didn't even want to be. I don't know. It just doesn't really jibe to me. So this is an interesting ending from Mike Milligan. I think a lot of people were disappointed about it, but I think it works with the themes of the series and of the season specifically. And I think it really does couch very well in there. Um, We do get one other big scene in this finale that maybe doesn't work as well uh, and that we're not as comfortable with. Um, We kind of see that some time has passed, not a ton of time. Uh, After the Milligan story, we cut to the fifth commercial break. And then when we're back... um, Hank is recovered enough to visit Lou and Betsy and Molly and Noreen uh, at, they're at the Silverson's home. Um, side note guys, what do you think happens to Noreen that she's not a part of season one? She seems like yeah. she's really building a bond with Molly here. And then she's not present at all in season one.
1: I had that exact same question because it's clear that Noreen, I mean, one, I don't know when her mother's going to pass away after this This scene ends, but it seems like Noreen's going to be a big part in raising Molly and, and almost serve as like that older sister figure. And it's weird that Molly and Lou would never mention her name in conversation or if she's even around. So who knows, maybe she runs away and maybe she joins Life Spring or she just goes <laughs> AWOL who knows, but it is weird that she's sort of the one piece left out of the equation between season two and season one with the solver sense. I
0: just don't, I don't know if Noah Hawley tries to have his cake and eat it too, too much or what, because you could have had Noreen say when, when they say you're kind of indispensable around here, she could have said, yeah, I think I'll stick around. I, I was planning on going off to college and I'll probably still do that, but I'll definitely be sticking around. <laughs> I'll for go a to Kent while. state. Oh, yikes. No full bloom. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, uh yeah, I don't know like it, besides we're past that time-wise, aren't we? Yeah, we are.
1: So I think so. I think so, yeah. So
0: anyway, um they could just have easily thrown a stray line in there. But I think what they like to do is I think they like to leave the door open so that they can continue to make these shows. And if they ever wanted to do one in like 1986, maybe they want to tell the Noreen story. So they don't want to close the book on that in this particular thing. But as it is right now, it's just like the Hansy Tripoli thing. It's another kind of loose end that I'm interested to know why it doesn't get tied up.
2: Yeah, I know, but I don't know. Do we really need to know what happens, story? I mean, just I guess because of the fact that she seemed like she was, you know, obviously tight with the family, obviously, and you was you're surprised that. She wasn't ever mentioned in this first season, but you know, we we a part of the reason some of the problems we've had with this show is the fact that it feels like they're trying so hard to have so many connections to that first season that maybe it's just best to leave this as a character who you know eventually does move on as she gets older and you know draws away from the family and doesn't and isn't part of the family as much as possible. Especially maybe after Betsy dies, maybe things really change for her and she kind of like I said moves on with her life.
0: Yeah, I think so, you're right. I think that's my having have your cake and eat it two point is that if you want to struggle so much that you're going to change a character's race and uh, facial structure and hair and skin color and all of it uh, to make one character connected to another character in season one. The least you can do is have Noreen throw a straight line in there. So that's my have your cake and eat it <laughs> yeah. too part. Like, I hear you, know, you. You're right. The show does bend over backwards to make connections between the seasons. And here when Molly could have used a confidant throughout season one with a lot of the difficult things she was dealing with, especially when the chief died. Um, we had the scenes with her and her dad, but he just kind of wanted her to not be a cop. And maybe uh, you know, a couple scenes with Noreen here and there would have been good. But you know, the fact of the matter is they didn't write season two before they wrote season one. So right. this is when you shoehorn a character In like this, the danger is if you make the bond between the characters too big, then you open the door up to questions like this. And if you don't address them, then they're just kind of lingering questions. But I have bigger fish to fry about that. Um, we,
1: we need, we need like Fargo one and a half yeah where they just, they fill in like <laughs> her and Carl Weathers and Sonny just need the, we'll just need to see a little, maybe even we need like webisodes of what they're doing in these 30 years. Yes, in and, the, <laughs> and, and the
0: evolution, uh, the de-evolution, the laziness of Tripoli, like how Hansy goes from T-1000 to, you know, just lazy fish eater. Like I I, you know, we need to see that as well. So. Um, yeah, but th- that, like I said, bigger fish to fry, not including E's fish, um, that, we've got kind of the UFO scene here just dismissed with like one line. Like, are you going to put that in your report? Oh, what that a gunfight got interrupted by a saucer. No, I think I'm going to minimize it. Yeah. Maybe leave it as subtext. Hank says, and I mean, this felt very like meta to me, (laughs) leave it as subtext. Hank says it felt like a conversation right out of the writer's room or something. I don't know. Were you guys okay with the fact that this tongue in cheek discussion of the UFO happened and that was all we got.
1: I mean, Jeremiah, this is exactly what you and Josh were talking about last week, right? This was your point of view that he would it'd
2: be too ludicrous for him to put that in a statement. Yes, that that is. what. I, that's why I was OK with it, because it's kind of what I already said. I was like, well, let's just <laughs> look at it. I was like, oh, hey, let the, don't don't tell anybody about that. Don't think you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know, because I mean, seriously, I mean, if I I just I listen I I don't know if there's aliens out there or not, right? But I just know that you know it's not an something adult? you you don't you don't go around telling people on a regular basis. Hey, I saw an alien, or I think I might have saw a UFO the other day. And, oh, you're and, not you're not supposed to do that. Especially is it something you're going to put in a report? You know, like what what is what is his captain or over you know like the the overseeing captain like reads this report and goes, an alien or a UFO, huh? <laughs> you know, it's just like I it's just something you're not going to mention. And I think that Hank was just giving some great advice here saying, yeah, you might want to leave that out, buddy. Yeah. Okay. It just sounds like a conversation I uh, that I would be having if I was in that situation. And and maybe it also stems a little
1: bit from his, I mean, he is he was pretty pissed off with the, you know, the Sioux Falls PD last episode where they basically said, okay, little boy, go play with your toys in the corner. We're going to handle this. And then they completely biff everything. So maybe this kind of shows is also uh, his, his frustration towards, that general sense of law enforcement as well. He's like, you know what, maybe, you know, even though I totally agree that it might not be in character for him to like lie outright for him to say like, maybe I'll withhold some facts because this is something that is, you, you clearly did not take this seriously and handle it the right way. So why should I?
0: Yeah, it's funny because I, you know, my, my thoughts on the subject are well known, but a lot of people on Reddit seem to be expecting more uh, from this finale with regard to the UFO. I think they wanted more of a thematic connection. They wanted something that was more clear. They wanted kind of a final statement on the UFO being present, all of it. And of course, that wasn't in the finale. That the, the craziest thing that had ever happened to any of them was dispensed with one line between two characters only. And clearly, Lou did tell Betsy about it because she's sitting right there when this conversation occurs. So he wasn't so embarrassed or crazy about it that he didn't tell anyone about it. He told, you know, Betsy about it and she knew. And Hank knew, and all all those people were on board. Uh, you know, it, I didn't expect anything more. I I feel like I'm pretty in tune with what the show was throwing out there. I just don't think it worked. But I think a lot of people were disappointed that we didn't get more about the UFOs. It doesn't seem like either of you were, but I know that the I, I saw that as one of the number one kind of negative pieces of feedback in comment sections across the internet about this episode is that this throwaway line was all they put in there to address the UFOs and that was that. Uh and you're right, it is a little bit of a nice little bow for why the logic wouldn't be there, uh why he wouldn't put it in his report. And I accept that. I, I buy that. Um what I don't accept and buy is I do find it interesting. You guys are making good points about his problems with law enforcement. Um I think it's fascinating that at the shoot at the massacre at Sioux Falls, I don't know how many police, uh, how many like cops died. Uh, I think it was at least four or five if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken uh, mm-hmm. I feel like even then this would have been a major major deal and I'm not sure how easy it would I would I feel like the federal government would have been involved I feel like the FBI would have been investigating with all the deaths that had happened in the region I feel like this would have been like not a thing that is ripe for the Mafia to just set up shop again uh, and to continue operation so I find that part of it to be interesting as well uh, it's sort of a loose end to me that all these cops could die, and it's not a federal case, and it, it's not a bigger deal. And I think it could be that. And I think once it becomes that, then I see the level of embarrassment really coming to to the the surface. Like I see Lou not wanting to tell the FBI uh, or any of these people, like who he probably doesn't regularly deal with. Like, yeah, you know what? I saw a UFO like that 's what happened that 's why I got the drop on this guy, so I think that you know if that if that's rounded rounded round out a little bit more, that makes a lot of sense. but some people were disappointed, people were also disappointed about the explanation that Hank gives about the symbols Mm -hmm. that were in his apartment. He basically talks about how you'll know the angels when they have the faces of your children. He wants to talk about how he's happy. And then Betsy kind of finds the moment to bring up the weird symbols she saw in his house. And this is like the last big scene of the finale. So I think it's a really important statement on the season. Hank goes into this story about why he invented these symbols, about how when his wife died, he was really kind of looking and doing a lot of soul searching and thinking about conflict and how the conflict often stemmed from communication issues and how he decided that he was going to create a bunch of symbols uh, for, you know, communication purposes. We joked about it a little bit already on this podcast. I personally really like this scene. Um, I really like, A, that it is is doing what I've kind of been asking to do with a lot of this alien supernatural stuff. It's providing a different context to the scene that has a thematic element to it that resonates in a way that isn't just strictly driving the narrative. Hank is not saying I was abducted by an alien. He's saying I was looking for answers, and this is what I found. And I think that that's fascinating. I like that. I don't mind the scene that it played as an alien scene when we first saw it, and then when we get the kind of solution to it. It is simply a, the theme of communication being established. Uh, and so I think that that's really pretty good. Um, I don't know. Did you guys not like this as much as I did? Oh,
2: I absolutely uh, well, loved it because it is exactly what me and you were hoping for from this explanation was that that's exactly, it was just him. He's looking, he's looking for answers. He's going through a hard process. Time in his life, and he needed, he needed something to to not only just take his mind off of, but able to focus on you know the issues at hand. And, and and I, it just I thought it was beautiful. And you're right, it it certainly fits beautifully into the theme of of the whole season. So I was I was okay with it. But I I, I understand. I know people want a lot more explanations. You know, it's just like the people when when loss was over, want to know every single mystery there was. And yes, part of me would love to know some more about Hank's language that he came up with but you know we're we're there's only so much you're going to be able to get in in uh, in a season so
1: well, I got to say that, uh, first of all, I have to have a bias against it because it sort of disproves my Hank is crazy theory. So it has, it has a little bit of a bias <laughs> yeah, going it's into it. time like Bloom
0: thing for sure. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, all but I mean,
1: it def- I think the one thing that it has really going for it that really brought me on board was this whole theme of miscommunication because that really has been the undercurrent throughout the season. And It, it didn't really hit my mind until he talked about that. That considering one of the most inciting incidents was the fact that nobody knew where Rye Gerhardt was. And nobody communicated with each other about that. And when Dodd sends the false communication uh, to to Floyd that, oh, the Butcher of Laverne killed Rye, that's when all this falling action of the next six episodes happens. And I feel like there's so much miscommunication or lack of communication going on with all of these different sides that it leads them to war and it leads them to conflict. And so I think it's just a very simple thesis statement of, uh, of the season, which I actually really enjoy because you can always enjoy, you know, in the first, you know, in the, in the last scenes of a movie, when it harkens back to the very first frame you see, I, I think those, that, that's, I that's, I actually really like that style of writing. I think the whole idea of using pictures to communicate as words, I mean, it's, it's cute. It's a little weird that Hank's trying to invent his own form of Esperanto that I guess turns into emojis. Um, so that's a little so in terms of like Hank as in terms of from a character perspective, I don't know if Hank's the type of person that would want to do that though out of grief I guess people can do a variety of things, but I think it's a, from a thematic perspective, I I actually enjoyed this even though it again May have disproved my theory that Hank is may a have, little continue. Continue. May, may, Just may,
2: have. may, that's right.
1: We don't know what happens to him. We, we we have to wait for Fargo one and a half to see if he gets shipped off to the Looney bin or not. Yeah, abs-
2: absolutely. I, I do totally agree. It it, it it this does fit so beautifully into the fact that it's if if, if it's, he's right, Hank's right. If if communications would have been a little better in this whole season, you know, none of these things may have happened. So it worked out so great. And and uh, I also, by the way in this season one and a half, can we find out what happened to Charlie? Yeah. To Charlie Charles. Gerhardt. Okay. okay good, good. You know, it's, good. Just, it's just
1: going to be 40 minutes of Charlie Gerhardt sitting in a jail cell. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> wow,
2: we,
0: we, that'd we, be boring. Charlie's like the surviving Gerhardt male. And we had got Dodd, Clearly he had some daughters that survived as well. Uh, we know he had four daughters. He mentioned at one point, we know Simone is dead, but we don't know what happened to the other three. So there are some Gerhards left and clearly Hansy uh, is left with another face and body and um, everything about him. But uh, yeah, there, well, there are, there are characters that are the same between these two. I so.
2: just wanted to, uh, like before we ended, the reason why I wanted to bring Charlie up is because I remember when uh, uh there was a lot of things people were speculating on, on, read it because of the fact that we during the preview for the final episode they had just shown the scene with the wallet and you see the social security card and you see the name so of course many theories was going out and we didn't really get a chance i think to really talk about on the podcast but one of the ones i really liked was the one that maybe it would be charlie like we see some kind of foreshadowing you know of scene in the future where he takes over this this uh persona and like takes over the mob and takes over the whole you know uh fargo mob scene that he would be mr tripoli and i i was loving this theory i was like this is brilliant and then we get this one with because i mean it won't it won't fix the uh fact that he doesn't look anything like him but i don't know i just i would have liked it a lot better if he would have <laughs> maybe been than, than Hansy for a lot of different reasons but oh well anyway i'm done with my rant
0: go ahead no, I think you're right. I think that that's
2: a, I think that there's a, that's a loose end. We don't know
0: what happens with Charlie. I'm okay not knowing. I assume that you know he's in a difficult spot. The Gerhard family's kind of in a shambles, and I don't know if we'll see him. If Kansas City will quietly take care of him and kill him while he's in jail, I don't know if anybody else he has. He does have a lawyer already, so that's that's he's got one that's thing. True. Working for him, so maybe that'll pay. Best out. lawyer in town. Best lawyer in town. Only lawyer. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we, we, we have to wait for the spin-off, Stormy <laughs> Weathers, where maybe Carl decides to take uh, Charlie on as his like legal aid.
0: Yes, exactly. That would be a good like a like a little comedy show, you know. And it turns into like Fargo Legal. We can do that. So yeah, I'm I'm up for that. We'll see, you know, or we won't. We'll see. T- Charlie's a character who, because he lives through this season, and because the show jumps from season to season, um, he we'll, we'll possibly see him again. Um, we're we're putting this kind of finale to bed with a final moment here of Lou putting Molly to bed. She's been reading the great brain books by John D Fitzgerald books. I read a lot when I was growing up, highly recommended if you haven't checked those out. Um, fascinatingly, those are set in uh, Utah in the sort of frontier era uh, in the early 1900s. And so you could kind of read right out of, they're they are supposedly true stories uh, from someone's childhood. You could read right out of that, uh, that, you know, they're a part of the same sort of uh, bookshelf that has the big book of true crime in the Midwest. So, um interesting that they showed that there. Um we see them talking about going fishing tomorrow, um beginning of their ritual maybe, or kind of a great nod to their ritual from season one. Right. Um and then we have Betsy and Lou in bed. Good night, Mr. Solverson, good night, Mrs. Solverson, and all the ships at sea. And I think a very tender, sweet ending, and I'm very mm-hmm. happy that we ended the show on this note. Uh and I think that the Solverson story, if you will, is put to bed a little bit. Um, we had some kind of news about season three. Does one of you have a really good summary, Mike, I think you might of, of what we've know about season three so far.
1: Yeah. So as you guys talked about in terms of basic information about season three, apparently it's supposed to take place a few years after the events of season one, and it will feature, Returning characters, we're going to assume those are season one characters, though. Who knows? We might see uh, you know, Mike Milligan, and old person makeup, uh, make an appearance or so. But the bigger piece of information, which actually came out today, the day we're recording, is that apparently Fargo will not be coming back until the year 2017. They're doing something very similar to what Louie did and sort of like Curb Your Enthusiasm as well, where it seems like the creators are going to probably take some time off and really work methodically at shaping this season. And without a set date to really premiere it, they can really... Uh, craft out the crank out the season that they want to, which I mean, Sucks because that means that you know, for all we know, we cannot be talking about Fargo until two years from now. But that being said, if it leads to an overall great product, then I think it's well worth the wait.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, as far as the aspects, as far as the characters that be taking place, did you did you get this from the interview that came out recently? I think um I think the Hollywood Reporter had it because I I thought if I remember right, he had mentioned that that we will not be seeing Molly or any anybody like that. So did not to get you guys hopes up to think that we will potentially be seeing a story involving Molly next season.
0: Yeah, it sounds How like did you see, see that? that interview. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. He said it sounded a little non-committal to me. It sounded like what Jeremiah is saying I think is accurate that he kind of basically said it's not going to be focused on the same characters like we wanted to kind of let them live in their world Uh, but he left open the door that they could absolutely be present in the show that you know that maybe it's going to be set two towns over and the connection to Molly Solverson is going to be like the connection to uh, Benjamin uh, Schmidt from this past season and season one where maybe she's in a couple of episodes but she's not the main character and that we're going to do a different kind of lead character Um, we did get new footage of everybody buddy, Keith Carradine, Molly Solverson, uh, or sorry, uh, Allison Tolman, Colin, Colin Hanks. We saw them in the scene that was filmed. I don't know if that was leftover from season one or not. Um, the fact that the daughter had blonde hair tells me that was probably like a one quick shoot in one day mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And she's probably working on another project. Uh, so I, I think the possibility is there for them to pop in and do something else. Um, but it doesn't seem like he's indicating that uh, the the series is going to be set around there. He did talk a lot about smartphones and selfies in one of the interviews <laughs> yeah, he I did. read. That's right. Oh, boy. And he said that, you know, the culture we live in now focuses a lot on that. Uh, yeah. And so it certainly sounds like we could be getting. Uh, some kind of story that involves smartphones and selfies and takes place in that world a little bit. Uh, so maybe a little true to form for what we're dealing with right now.
2: Well, yeah, I, I heard a new theme for the season three. And that's what I heard. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what
0: do you hear, Jeremiah?
2: No, I mean, they, he'll be exper- looking at that idea that maybe we're living in a world now where everyone is so caught up in themselves. And I think that we're definitely going to see that somehow play into The theme of season three. I just kind of—that's what I got from the interview. I was just kind of referring to the interview you were talking about.
0: Yeah, it's weird because. I wouldn't, I mean, and we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but I, I wouldn't say that season one has an overarching theme uh, the way that season two did season two really no. addressed kind of uh, yeah. the malaise of that period and the way the war was lingering over people and American idealism and exceptionalism cast against the time when we had lost a war and not won one and having to deal with how we were going to transition that into the era that was the eighties. And that sort of the future. Mike Milligan says at one point, I'm the future. And then he ended ends up with an ending that is the future and is a little bit bleak. So Mm -hmm. um, I do think that all of those things are thematic and fascinating. I didn't feel like season one really popped in that way. I felt like season one was a much more straightforward story. So it will be interesting to see if season three is kind of jumping off. And he said he's already broken the first episode and they're working on writing season three as we speak. They just kind of need to shoot it in the wintertime and they can't really shoot it this winter. So they have to shoot it next winter. Um, That, you know, if season three is popping off off uh, with a lot of themes again. It will be fascinating to see how that plays out. I don't know. We did UFOs this season. What's the worst possible thing that we could include in Fargo season three that would really rub you guys the wrong way? Zombies?
1: I'm thinking either <laughs> zombies or vampires. Yeah
0: yeah because i mean what was big in 2010 vampires probably
1: right vampires were big and then it became well it became like vampires around like i feel like the late 2000s like 2007 through 2009 and then around 2010 was when like zombies started becoming popular once the walking dead premiered so we could have zombie vampires is what you're telling me yeah i think think they might as well say let's go best of both worlds let's let's throw them both in there well, I mean,
0: you know, it's interesting because we laugh and we justify the UFOs and this like, Oh, everybody was talking about UFOs then. Well, that's true. And everybody was talking about zombies and, and vampires
2: in 2010. Well, so, <laughs> I if just hope it doesn't an include anything with the Kardashians or something like that. That would be upsetting to me.
1: Yeah. Instead of, instead <laughs> of uh, Ronald Reagan coming on a tour, it's, uh, it's Kardashian. Kim Kardashian.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. that would, <laughs> Can uh, we throw it Justin Bieber while we're at it? What the heck? You know,
1: <laughs> I mean, anything's possible. This is Fargo. So, You know
2: the door is
0: open, and I I don't know. Uh, There's there's a lot that could go wrong. Obviously, when you make a new season of a television show, True Detective season two, for example, was not very well received. Um, That could go wrong. Fargo season three could not be great. Uh, and then again, it could be fantastic. We'll just have to wait, unfortunately, till about April 2017 to see. Noah Hawley is working on developing other projects at FX. I don't mm-hmm. know if any of those will bubble to the surface um, be, be, until then or before then. He also has an original novel that's for sale. Um, you can get it on Amazon if you want to look it up. I, I there, It's got great blurbs and great reviews, so if you're really into this guy's writing um, and you want to support the guy more, uh, The Good Father is the name of the book I'm talking about. I think you might have another one or two as well. Um, the the Good Father seems to be the one that people are reading uh, if they they want to kind of get their Noah Hawley fix. So you may want to check that out uh, if if that's something you're into. Uh, I don't know. Final thoughts on season two, guys? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Um, are, you know, where, where, where are we at the end of all of this? Mike, start with, your, with yours, if you don't mind.
1: So, I mean, I have to give a huge thumbs up to the performances here. I mean, I know last season every everyone really loved the performances as well especially Allison Tolman was a huge breakout person there i feel like as we talked about Noah Hawley made it, took a lot of risks this season and one of them i felt like was making this season more of an ensemble season i mean you could say that there were people who popped in here and there in season 1 but it was really oriented around like four main characters whereas here they really spread out a lot of stuff you know they had an entire family function as sort of main characters and across the board i feel like the performances absolutely slaughtered it. I think this is Kirsten Dunst's best work to date. This is the best thing I've ever seen her do. Um Ted Danson I think did a fantastic job. I mean I could I could go on and on about all the performances that have happened. Um even with with secondary characters like Nick Offerman in the, the first episode I came on with you guys absolutely killed it. So in terms of an acting perspective, I think this season was fantastic. Thematically, I think even though it, it might have You know, whiffed a few times, I love the fact that they tried to do something different. Second seasons are, for a lot of shows, usually an opportunity for creators to repeat the same beats or to put characters in directions that people aren't comfortable with. But because they're taking this sort of anthology format, they're able to sort of start over and really rebuild a show the way they want to do it. And I I feel like the, the things they brought up, as we talked about before, having a through line throughout and really bringing up these themes that we haven't talked about in the first season generations. Uh, we have the themes of, as we talked about the, the eighties coming in um, about communication as was talked about before. There's just so much, there was so much bubbling under the surface that it was, even though, you know, we weren't able to binge this season. It's, it's been a lot of fun to look at the analysis over the course of the week. Cause I didn't get to experience that with the Fargo season one to say, okay, what do people think of this and how do they connect certain things? And that's been a lot of fun to kind of get involved with that community and find those connections just because there's so much great stuff going on thematically. So even though, you know, the, even though there were a couple things that they sort of misstepped on in the past couple episodes, I have to give a big thumbs up to this show. I still think it's one of the best shows on TV. It's definitely one of the most ambitious shows on TV and overall I enjoyed it extremely.
2: Well, I have pretty much a lot of the same feelings you have, Mike. I mean, obviously, you've pointed out just about everything that I feel about with the uh, performance of the actors was so, so phenomenal this season. I do like that they stuck to a lot of the themes uh, very well, and I really enjoyed that, and I appreciate that as well. I think that there is some things that was a bit of a miss in this season, especially maybe in some writing uh, choices that they went with. Uh, but you know, like you said, they take risks, and you know, some of them pay off, some of them don't, and that's okay, and that's what makes this show really great. And it's definitely one that I'm going to continue to follow and watch myself. And I'm actually going to look. I'm kind of looking forward to Mikey. You mentioned about the the binge watching thing. I'm actually kind of looking forward to seeing how this plays out for me a little bit when I go to binge watching. Like, am I going to have a different feeling about it overall? by watching it in a binge style, because it definitely feel like when you watch a show in in a binge, it definitely changes sometimes the way you feel about certain things. But uh, yeah, overall I thought this was a very solid uh, second season. I do think that I still feel like maybe season one was a little bit more up my alley that I Enjoyed a little bit more, but I I'm going to look back at season two and still have some, some happy overall happy thoughts about it. And I am definitely looking forward to season three. What about you, my man, Antonio? Yeah, I mean, it is, as I
0: said, one of the best made shows on television, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, the artistic choices that are made in terms of uh, big decisions are often huge. Uh, I think of the time jump in season one as an example of that, like fantastic choice that was made. I think it worked out really well, as I've said throughout. I think the show swings and misses, and I appreciate that it takes swings. I think that um, for some people, this show... Uh, because there are so many thematic elements to it, um, the straightforward presentation of other elements like a UFO are are difficult. Uh, you know, it's not um, it's not just something as simple as like a side story uh, that ties in a real life event. Like I think that it is. Uh, there's a lot of theme to it, um, and I do think that on a show that resonates with themes, uh, this is a it's it's a much different show. As I was just saying than the show we watched in season one, which contained themes and asked questions, I think, and generated questions about what is the nature of evil? Where does it come from? And is really kind of an interesting rumination on that. But it is not ultimately the show that season two was, which is a much deeper show thematically. I think that the presentation sometimes brings that out with the split screens, uh, with the way they choose to kind of show reactions and linger. Uh, I think that works a lot of the time with the way that it's paying homage to the Coen brothers. But I think this show is so much better uh, when when it's focusing and narrowing and doing things really, really well. I think when you open yourself up to not being so straightforward and to being kind of thematic, where in one episode, you are telling you know uh, quote unquote true story which I understand the conceit and then in another episode where you have a narrator in the penultimate episode of the season reading it from a book and you're taking another step back and you're looking at a different kind of layer of the story as it's being presented to you I think it's difficult and I think that Mm. this show I applaud it for making difficult choices and taking difficult chances and ultimately I I feel like that um, in acknowledging that I can also acknowledge that I don't think they always work but I would rather they take the chances than not take them. I think there are yeah. a lot of straightforward shows on television where it's a pretty simple, straightforward thing and that's that. I, I much prefer the shows like Mad Men, uh, like this show, uh, like other shows like The Sopranos, that really revel in the subtext, that really make a lot of their living off of the subtext. And I prefer that to a straightforward show like The Walking Dead uh, or even Game of Thrones, which is, is presenting a straightforward narrative, but maybe doesn't have the thematic subtext A show like Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Uh, and the other shows I've mentioned really bring to the table. So I really appreciate that Fargo fits in that pantheon rather than just a straightforward crime story. I think there are times when they've crossed lines that uh, don't always work for me, as you've heard on this podcast, but I applaud season two for the high highs, uh, even as I acknowledge it had some rough spots. And I think that it's fair to say that about the show personally. Um, I think that it's silly to think that any show is ultimately perfect. I think even our best shows have weaknesses in them and there are things about them that rub us the wrong way. And I, I'm certainly not going to be off the bus for Fargo Season 3. April 2017 can't come soon enough. Uh, I do recommend, you you know, if you want to read Noah Hawley's book, The Good Father, um, very good book, and there are other things that he's got in the works that are probably going to be well worth checking out. Some of the directors on this season and the last season of Fargo are great directors of television. Highly recommend that you look into them as well. Um, probably some of the other things they've directed have been just as artistic and maybe are getting over Look, so it's really worth looking into that I can't wait to see kind of what the cast for Fargo season 3 looks like not mm-hmm. the most well rated show but a very critically acclaimed show so I think it gives them the opportunity to pull in actors like Patrick Wilson, Ted Danson, Kristen Dunst uh, and, and Christina Milioti people that are known for other things that are willing to do kind of a one off season of TV uh, and do it in a, in a great way so I'm excited about all things Fargo season 3 I hope we don't get I was joking I hope we don't get zombies anywhere, <laughs> and, and vampires and vampires. <laughs> It wouldn't shock me at this point. Nothing would. Um, And I think the show has taken some big chances that haven't worked. But ultimately, I applaud it for taking the chances at all. And there you go. Listen, Antonio, yeah.
2: if there's zombies or any of those things in season three, I'll cut off my toe. Okay. <laughs> I can get you, a toe, Jeremiah. Right. you want a toe.
1: Jeremiah, nine toes coming spring 2017. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it's interesting. And I'll just add one more point on that. I forgot that I, I also love that the show took a look at characters that we didn't see in the first season, which was very whitewashed and did center a lot on male characters. It was great to see female characters, even as skewed as they may be about what a feminist perspective is. It was great to see minority characters and from two different perspectives, both an African-American and a Native American and how their roles fall in and, and how they're being perceived at the time. So it's, that's yet another thing that got added on in terms of, I think, setting it in the, in the time period, I think you do fall into some Mad Men-esque aesthetics of nostalgia or you know certain stereotypes associated with the era. But it was great to see those types personified in that era and see how it affects their actions as well.
2: And yeah. I'll, I'll close with saying one of the things I thought was beautiful about this season, too, is to look to be able to look at the Solver, Solverson family even more, be able to see, you know, Molly's parents as young parents and, you know, seeing how their their lives are and to all in this story. I just thought it was great to be able to really get that backstory with the Solversons. And I don't know if this is going to be a complete close on their story for the, you know, the the entire overall Fargo pantheon of different stories we're going to have over the over the over the time but even if it is great i think we had a a nice close to their to their story i really do
0: yeah, I think that's right. And I think that I I I'm happy to think about them in the moment with the ships kind of at sea uh being being said goodnight to uh and then all the wonderful kind of dream parts uh from Betsy's dream and that you know you can think of them being happy and living their lives even though Betsy's not a part of that uh and going on to achieve and experience what they have uh, the family lives that they that they've brought together at the end of season one and beyond. And so I think that that's really um, when seeing the grown-up son of, uh, of, of Tom, Colin Hanks and Alison Tolman there in that kind of flash forward, seeing him like as a, like a five or six year old, I think was really great. And I think,
1: are, are we sure, are we sure that's not
0: handsy? Oh, come on. Yeah, it could be, I guess it could be right. You never know. Uh, so anyway, um, I think that's really great. I like knowing that they're out there just kind of taking it easy for the rest of us and, you know, doing what they do, uh, and I appreciate that. I, I really do like that that aspect of the show, kind of continuing and being a through line throughout the first two seasons. I agree with you, Jeremiah. And we'll see where season three takes us. Um, we certainly uh, appreciate everybody kind of listening to this podcast and commenting throughout the season. Uh, we probably won't be doing a Fargo podcast before 2017, but certainly um, subscribe to our feed at com slash iTunes or on our page at postshowrecaps.com uh, and you can subscribe to anything we're doing, and then if one pops up, it pops up. You can always also tweet at us and let us know how much you hate us, love us or are indifferent. I'm at AC Mazzaro. That's two Z's and one R. Mike, you're at a Mike Bloom type.
1: That is correct. And I just wanted to also take this opportunity to thank you guys for bringing me on for these few episodes as well. It's a show that I love and I love it even more getting to talk about with you guys. And I also want to say on air that you and Josh have done a fantastic job I, I really think this is a great companion piece to really breaking down everything that happened on the show this season so kudos to you guys completely yeah and
0: i i, I, I echo that i think that mike we've, we're thankful for the episodes you've popped on you joined us on three of them uh, and you really added to the conversation jeremiah you've been great as well how
2: can we get in touch with you at j panhorst yep that's correct you can uh, you, hit me up do you on a, t- don't, don't you have a website as well uh, yes, I do. Yes. Uh, it's at com. I've been uh, doing some work over there, mostly talking about television and movies. Of course, that's what I have a major passion for. And, uh, Mike, I do want to say that I have, uh, it's been a pleasure We're having you on, man. It's been great to hear your thoughts and, uh, getting, getting another person in here to be able to hear a different point of view is really great. And also too, I guess I'll take that moment too. I want to really thank all of the people that have been commenting on our website. Boy, we got some really smart listeners, uh, that, uh, comment on there. So definitely take a moment to go up toward the website and look at some of the comments that we've had on each one of these episodes. It's been phenomenal. It really has. So thank you to all those of the listeners out there that have been commenting, really been enjoying reading your comments
0: yeah Trent C and John Davis have really been commenting a lot on this show in particular and I think they both have re- added a lot to the conversation I'm very thankful uh, for the discussions they've had on a civil level with me about the UFO and the place that <laughs> you know that could occupy throughout Geek Furious has been great I know Geek Furious is big kind of pushing some of the stuff we do on Reddit we also really appreciate our Philly as well uh, Lance Davis uh, so many people really throughout that I don't want to leave anybody out but um, these people have added so much to the conversation and it wouldn't be uh the same without you guys and uh so thank you very much and certainly looking forward to uh your, your comments about this finale your thoughts i'd love to hear from the as well uh, and other users who have been consistent commenters throughout the season here so all right so let's go with hashtag fargo 1.5 if you'd like to tweet at us and let us know what you thought about this podcast or uh this uh kind of season of fargo in general use that hashtag in your tweet so we can kind of link them all together and follow them again thank you guys all very much and we'll talk to you soon in another world. Goodbye.